to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. Hello. I'm sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. I'm talking here for a mile a minute for the last four minutes, and I forgot to unmute myself. Welcome to another Fed Up Friday here on Southern Sense Listening Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iHeart Radio, YouTube, Stitcher Speaker, YouTube, Facebook. Yes, we're back up on uh, YouTube. I'm your hostess with the least mostest who can mess up a wet dream, <laughs> the Radio Chickadee, along with my two gentlemen co-hosts that are going, what the heck did I just get myself into today? Chris Kassler and former, former Congressman Ted Yoho. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon, Ted. How are you today? Good afternoon, Annie. Good afternoon, Annie. <laughs> Good to hear your voice. Uh, well, I've been down and out for a while, and I'm just trying to get myself back into the gear of things. I'll tell you, when you get COVID, it really does have a tendency to kick your butt, and that it did to me, so as you can tell, <laughs> I'm a little wackadoodle today. Well, we're all here now. Don't worry about it. That's right. Glad you're doing better. Oh, thank God. You know, the funny part is, is that here I am. I'm I'm so glad I finally got rid of the COVID. And guess what? COVID has a tendency, I'm finding, that will leave people with bronchitis. So no sooner did I get rid of the COVID, I now have bronchitis. 
for the second time this year. I am really a happy camper. Anyway, guys, we got ourselves a jam-up show today. Ted, we have you joining uh, with Beth Heath a little bit later on this morning, uh, talking about We Can Be Heroes Foundation, as well as a whole slew of other things going on uh, in our crazy, crazy world today. Uh, we're going to follow up with Adam Weiss. Uh, he is the CEO of AMWPR uh, Public Relations. Um, he's going to be talking about Tucker Carlson and a whole slew of other wokeness that has crept into our society. And then we're going to finish up the show with uh, two gentlemen that have been on before. They're military veterans, and they also served in Afghanistan as military contractors, Alan Chason and Ed Ford, who have a great book out called Postcards Through Hell. And, oh, boy, this is a riveting, riveting book. So we got a lot to talk about and a lot to do, guys. Are you ready? Are you buckled up for a great show today? Sure am. Ready to go. <laughs> All right. Both of you know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And actually, in honor to Ed and Alan, I picked out someone that they recognized in their book. And let me get my little stuff together here. All right, I had it all set up here. Oh, yeah, here it is. Bear with me. Uh, Today's show is going to be dedicated to Army Sergeant Eric E. Williams, who was killed while serving during Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan on July 23rd of 2012. And this reads from the Chicago Tribune from Tony Perry who also had it in the Los Angeles Times. And it goes out, During his deployment in Afghanistan as a flight medic with the Army's 82nd Airborne Division, Sergeant Eric Williams kept a blog about the dangers and frustrations of a war zone. In his coming home entry of July 17, the 27-year-old Williams wrote that his year-long deployment was nearing an end. He said he would need time to reflect on what he had seen in Afghanistan and to adjust to a homeland where few civilians truly knew or perhaps even care about the war or the soldiers fighting in it. Six days later, Williams was killed in a Taliban mortar attack on a small forward operating base in eastern Afghanistan. He was staying overnight at the base as he and others made their way to the airbase near Kabul for a flight home. In Menifee, in southern Riverside County, William's wife, Wendy, was excited when she heard a knock on the door of her apartment that morning. She had talked to her husband just a day earlier. I thought for a minute he was surprising me by coming home earlier, she said. Instead, it was an officer and a chaplain notifying of her of her husband's death. Everything just slowed down. I started shaking, and I just went black with disbelief, she said. You just don't want to hear it. It's a feeling I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. The couple, married but a year, had plans, a vacation near the beach in San Diego, and then relocation to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Williams had recently re-enlisted in hopes of joining the Special Forces as a medic. After graduating from Marietta Valley High School in 20, 
1902. Williams worked as an emergency medical technician before enlisting in the Army in 2007. He served a tour in 2008-9 as a combat medic in Iraq. After retraining as a flight medic, he deployed to Afghanistan, assigned to a Black Hawk crew that rescues injured or wounded military personnel from the battlefield and renders aid to Afghan civilians caught in the crossfire of war. He was always on his games at Sergeant Cormac Chandler, a crew chief who served with Williams. Will always kept his cool, which in turn helped me to keep my cool, and he never quit. Like many parents, Williams' mother, Janet, who lives in Marietta and is a Riverside County probation officer, had not been enthusiastic about her son enlisting in the Army during a time of war, but she respected his sense of fulfillment in being a medic. He was there to save lives, she said. He was there for a purpose. And he loved what he did. In the weeks before Christmas, Williams wrote about the blood and pain that lingers in your aircraft after a rescue mission. Quote, the 12-year-old boy shot in the face, the soldiers riddled with shrapnel, and another in uncontrollable convulsions. It takes a toll on us all, even if you don't want to admit it, unquote. In March, when the U.S. troops burned a Koran and a sergeant was accused of murdering civilians near Kandahar, Williams wrote about how such outrages were undermining the hard work of other Americans in Afghanistan. He wrote, Things are rapidly spinning out of control here. There is so much unrest felt by both sides. We've been here so long, but the choice of whether to stay or leave most certainly is out of my control. We are here to support, to help, to try our hardest and bid most obstacles to make a difference. I'm pretty damn sure that we're accomplishing that. Wayne's wife and mother hope that his blog can be published to help the public understand the war from the perspective of a soldier on the front lines. Wendy Williams, 26, said her grief still overcomes her on occasion, striking at inopportune times like when she broke down while shopping. She never tried to talk her husband out of re-enlisting, even though she knew it would have meant additional war zone deployments. I met him as a soldier, she said. I knew what I was getting into. To honor his memory, she got a tattoo on her arm with the medic's motto, Not Without Your Wounded. A freelance photographer, she plans to continue her education in art school. I'm doing that for him, to make him proud, she said. Williams was assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 82nd Combat Aviation Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division. For his service in Afghanistan, he was posthumously awarded the Bronze Star. In his final blog post, Williams wrote that he was concerned about a growing discontent, disconnect between the military and civilian populations. And he expressed anger at the thought of veterans being homeless or jobless. He wrote, But I can only hope that things someday will change. As for our accomplishments here in Afghanistan, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I will forever hold these experiences close. Along with his mother and wife, Williams is survived by his father, Bruce, a Navy veteran who lives in Hemet. His ashes were spread off the sea of Coronado.
And in Chapter 51 of the book, Postcards Through Hell, Ed and Alan write, Although he's not a member of the Pony Express, the contributions made by Sergeant Eric Williams to the SOC mobile teams, the U.S. Army, coalition forces in Afghanistan, and the American and America bear mentioning. Sergeant Williams was instrumental in enhancing our medic response posture and overall contributed to the success of the Pony Express mission's outcomes. Eric was one of the U.S. Army's premier flight medics with the All-American Dust-Off Team. He was attached to the 3rd Battalion, 82nd Combat Aviation Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division, Company C, and flew it out of Gansey Province. He would always hook up, hook, chase up with medical supplies and intel whenever they met. Eric was KIA by IDF mortar in eastern Afghanistan on his return to the United States on July 23, 2012. Eric was 27 years old at the time of his untimely death and hailed from Marietta, California. The All-American Dust-Off team flew more medevacs in Afghanistan than any other era medical sources combined. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Eric Williams. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song by Tiffany. It's called Soul of the Nation. May God bless each and every one.
Hello. 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 Hi, I can't. Hi, I can't uh... Hello. Can you hear me? This is Ted. Hey, this is Chris. Hi. Can you hear me, Ted? I can hear you, Chris. Um, great. Great. The audio went blank. Yeah, I know. I've been sitting here wondering what to do. I I, I don't have any control over it. Hi, can you hear me? Hmm. Is Annie there? I I hear sounds in the distance, but I don't hear any voices per se. Okay. I hung up and dialed back in, so. 
That was smart. Good for you. So, uh, do I address you as a or doctor? I was looking at your resume online to your Right. You can just call me Ted. I call you Ted. Okay. <laughs> All um, right, guys. It looks like I'm back in. Am I back in? Yes. Yes, we can hear you. All right. It looks well, like there's something welcome. going on with my audio here because now my headset going through my mixer board is not working, but I hear everyone else, but I can't. you can't hear me, which is interesting. I was going to say, welcome back to your show. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have you. Oh, is today Friday the 13th? Are you sure it's not a full moon out there? No, but it's an old joke in Pogo. Friday the 13th comes on a Tuesday this month. Oh, yeah. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and, boy, are we living in a swamp today. That's for dang sure. Uh, well, you guys, we don't have our regular guest, which we would have been Adam Weiss of the A. MWPR out of New York, which is a public relations uh, uh, firm that handles people like Judge Jeanine Pirro, Lee Zeldin, and Corey Lewandowski, and so forth. But instead, we've got next best, we've got one of our best friends here to the show who sends us a lot of guests with Adam, A.J. Bruno. So, A.J., how are you today? And how about <laughs> having a cluster F on a Friday? Hi, yeah, right. Uh, good to talk to you. Um, how's it going? Oh, man. If anything can go wrong, will go wrong, and it normally does happen to me. <laughs> anyway. It tends to happen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest co-host is Chris Kassler of Chris Kassler Productions. Um, he does a lot of video uh, photography and everything else, a fantastic career. And also, our one and only, uh, don't say AOC, <laughs> former Congressman Ted <laughs> Yoho. <laughs> Joining us here today. Thank, well, thank you, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just said, don't say AOC. What else can I say, Ted? <laughs> Considering she's proud that she now has kicked uh, Tucker Carlson off of Fox News. Did, did you catch that? That she's bragging about that, Ted. So, AJ, I know uh, Adam wanted to talk <laughs> about this. Go ahead, Ted. I want to let you go on this one. Well, she's a legend in her own mind. <laughs> that sums it up perfectly. Excellent. No more comment. <laughs> well, you know, I always thought, you know, you got Maxine Waters in there as a congresswoman. You got Nasty Pelosi in there. So, I mean, why not just lower the bar? Oh, wait a minute. Did I say bar? We just passed the bar, AOC bartender. Hmm. Oh, man. What a, <laughs> a little jab there. That's... Anyway. Um, we have this whole big blow-up with Tucker Carlson uh, leaving Fox News, uh, and it's no one's really saying exactly why, but there's a lot of stories going around all over the Internet on why he may have left. And um, A.J., the second he started talking about January 6th and playing the videos, I said, that's it. They're going to put a nail in his coffin. He's going to be gone. What, what were you seeing on your end? Well, I mean, people don't like when you're asking questions about these sorts of things. So uh, I don't see a problem with someone examining all the video footage and the evidence and whatnot. I mean, I don't know what they're afraid of finding out, but that shouldn't be an issue at all. So I don't know. I've heard a million reasons why they uh, they, they fired him, whatever it was. Um, so who knows? But I mean, Fox is. I mean, Fox really hasn't been so great for years anyway. 
Um, so it's just kind of a progression of that. But, yeah, um, you know, anyone can get canceled these days, and it just goes to show even if you're a big moneymaker for them, you're not uh, you're not excluded from that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, if, if he can be taken down, I guess anyone can. So it's uh, kind of a, a worrying situation just in general. You know, I, I took a lot of pride when um, YouTube banned me. And they completely took down my original uh, uh, YouTube page. So I can't get that back at all. So I said, all right, fine, let me go and open up a new one. Well, lo and behold, I'm about maybe four or five episodes in, and down I go again. So I'm just waiting to see, because I'm not talking about COVID today, you know, YouTube. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but we'll see whether or not they decide I'm giving out misinformation again, which is worthy of being censored. But... Um, didn't they try, Ted, to do a Ministry of Truth in our Department of Homeland Security? Doesn't this rank as if some influence was being made on Fox News? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were trying to do that Minister of, Ministry of Truth, like you said, and, you know, that harkens to the day of Nazi Germany and uh, Joseph Goebbels. And we have come uh, a very far away from the constitutional republic that we were founded on. And uh, it's we're getting into very scary times, and people feel that. And, uh, you know, when they start censuring because they don't like the narrative, yet they put out false narratives routinely, um, whether it's uh, the inflation is under control or Janet Yellen saying, oh, inflation is just going to be transitory short term, and it's like, they'll tell you this stuff, and they don't get censured. The people that should be held accountable aren't. So, yeah, we're in strange times, dangerous times. And uh, like I said, people that you wouldn't hear say some of the things that you would would think some people would say out loud, they're starting to say it. And, um, um, you know, just let's pray that uh, calmer heads prevail and uh, the next election goes favorably to the conservative constitutional republic side. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Now, Chris, you you have a fantastic video production company, and you hit all different types of subjects. Are you finding yourself at this point being censored in some of the things you put out there? Um, no, we're not at the moment. What we're we're working in a new direction. Um, the documentaries we made over the last couple of years were very much political and conservative, to put it nicely. Um, we tried to alert people to the threats in 2020 with our film called America in Peril, which we used the naked communists as a, a guidepost uh, to help us get that done, the 45 points that were put out in that book or in that presentation in 1958 to show us what would happen or what would be happening to indicate that our country was lost. And the bottom line is that every one of those 45 points has been hit. Um, goes back that far. So we've included things like giving up the Panama Canal, which happened in 1979, including more recent things like one of the political parties being taken over by the communists. And that's happened too. Um, so what we're working on now is a different uh, direction, although we're going to be using our production comp- capabilities. Uh, I have started a super PAC which is going to be funded next week to the tune of six figures. And we're going to use that to affect the political climate here in Orange County. And our goal is to upend the current regime in Orange County, which is liberal, 
and which has not been paying, including the city, by the way, which is a separate issue, but it's within the county, um, has not been paying attention to the needs of the local constituents and operating pretty much in its own interests. It's also been dissuading new businesses from moving to central Florida. We need that very badly. We're a community that has the lowest per capita income of the 50 largest cities in the country, and that's because many of our jobs are basically service-level bed-making jobs, which I don't decry, but I think that it would be better if we had uh, businesses here that could actually employ our, our highly trained college graduates coming out of UCF in science, technology, mathematics, and space. Instead, three-quarters of those graduates are getting up and leaving Florida because they can't find jobs here. Wow. We're going to change. Wow. <laughs> he says, yeah, you're going to change Florida. DeSantis is doing that, too. Now, AJ, um, when you're out there and you're, you're, you're handling, you've got a lot of highly conservative clients out there. Are you finding it harder to place them with something like Tucker being censured? Are you finding that they're saying, well, wait a minute, um, we may lose advertisers or something, he may say something the wrong way when we might get sued. Do you find people like you're being very hesitant? You know, it, uh, it depends. Yeah, that, that can happen. Um, definitely with, uh, with Fox shows, they are much more reluctant to put on um, conservative clients compared to what they used to be. But in, in general, I just think the whole media climate is uh, very hostile <clears throat> to to conservatives. Um, if you say something they don't like, they cancel you. And, I mean, look, even, uh, even the Republican Party has been um, kind of corrupted. I mean, we have um, – I think you mentioned there's, there's a former congressman here. We have, what's like, I think 20% of current Republican Congress members, like, voted for the Democrats' gay marriage bill. So even the Republican Party has been corrupted and – um, you know, I feel like uh, we're probably losing some of these culture battles, and the media doesn't want to give an opposing viewpoint to people who have uh, conservative views. In a lot of cases, not always, but you know, it tends to be if you're not a solidly right of center media outlet, you probably don't want to expose different views. And um, so, I think it's just kind of a, a systematic pattern we've been seeing overall, and um, it's it's unfortunate. And you know, I wish something would change with it, but uh, we're definitely losing some ground in some of these things. Wow, that, that's a scary thought, that freedom of yeah. speech, that you're, you're simply expressing an opinion, and you're going to be attacked, you're going to be cancel cultured, you're going to be shamed and blocked in every avenue possible, simply because you have a point of view that is contrary to less than 1% of our society. Now, that's a very scary thought, Ted, that our First Amendment can be violated so blatantly. No, it has. I mean, A.J. is absolutely right. When you look at the, the Republicans that voted for that um, that uh, marriage bill, my replacement voted for that, and it goes against her base. And uh, a lot of these, well, again, we, we've talked about politicians and statesmen. Politicians worry about their next election. So they're going to vote to not inflame the K Street people or the PACs and all that uh, so that they get their money for the next reelection. Whereas the statesmen, they're going to vote for the next generations, you know. And what we're seeing now is we've got too many politicians, and there are a large block of them on the Republican side that are going to vote to not rock the boat. And that's how you get a rapid change in society. We've talked about Obama's fundamental transformation of America that he announced five days before his inauguration in '09. Now, the media is saying that uh, President Biden and I use that word loosely, um, 
that he is fundamentally transforming America's uh, through the economics and things like that. And understand is what he's doing is an extension of the eight years that Obama was in there, and then the deep state of um, uh, of the administrative states getting more woke. And you know, no, nobody in Congress voted on ESG standards to be put out into the public. Those are all done through the executive branch or through administrative states. And the American people never voted for that because if it came up for a vote, it would not survive. Well, didn't we recently have a recent bank failure out of California because they heavily invested in ESG and, oops, everything collapsed on them, which started a series of bank failures that Janet Yellen offered to bail out at the expense of the American taxpayer because they made a bad investment decision with ESGs? Gee, we, yeah. I, don't, I don't see a trap there, do you? No, but, you know, they had a director of ESG and wokeism at the bank, but they didn't have one, the director of regulations there. And so, you know, you get what you pay attention to, and they weren't paying attention to, you know, the uh, safeguards to keep a bank solvent. Now, um, Ted, I know Beth Heath should be calling in, and I'm not sure what her phone number is, but if she is out there, and I see a ton of people in our studio audience, I want to thank them for calling in and listening in. But if it is Beth, please press 1 on your handset so I know that uh, – on your telephone so I know that it is you. And I just saw – there we go. Hand is up. And I'm hey. hoping that this is Beth. Is this Beth? Yes, yes it is. Good afternoon. I am Beth. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back to the show. We've got uh, Chris Kassler here as our guest co-host, along with Uncle Ted, as I call him, former Congressman uh-huh. Ted Yoho. We love Ted, and Ted knows that. <laughs> he knows. He's got a permanent space Thanks, here. Thanks, Annie. Hello, Beth. Beth. Hey, hey, sir. How are you? All right. We also have we also have with um, AMW uh, Public Relations out of New York, AJ Bruno, uh, subbing in for Adam Wee. So AJ, feel free to jump in anytime and every time. We just do a whole big round robin and keep on going. So don't be bashful. Sure, we'll do. Okay. Okay. All right. That, so, you, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, not to interrupt. Um, I. I presume that you remember that our mission of We Can Be Heroes is very broad and includes um, recognizing America's national heroes and our unsung heroes throughout our community. And we have a online wall of heroes where any folks can place a picture of their personal hero. And um, so it's just like a regular wall of heroes, but it's on and it's so uh, moving and beautiful. We also help homeless veterans and others in need. But the mission I wanted to talk about today includes education on America's founding values. And if I can continue on, if that's okay with everyone. Um, no, go ahead, because you have the uh, 1776 Project on your website. I do, I do. Regarding uh, our founding values, I would like to talk about the Amendment 6 to our Constitution that specifies our rights on all criminal prosecutions. And for over two centuries since our founding, we've all been very comfortable knowing that our our Constitution had our back. But now, as you know, things have gone astray. And one item that has gone astray 
is the protection of our Sixth Amendment specific rights in all criminal prosecutions. And if I may, I'd like to share the magnitude of this problem. What oh, absolutely, Beth. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm glad that you're talking about this, and the perfect example is what is going on with President Trump, but we see it nationwide, as you point out on your website. This has been going on for more than half a century, the, the encroachment on our Sixth Amendment right of a fair trial, a speedy trial, a trial by a jury of our peers. And they're, we're finding that the left is using the court system and the way it has been, excuse my language, but been bastardized, to actually control us and create a whole new narrative of American society. And this is what I'm glad that you bring out because of the increased incarceration rates, the increase of people pleading guilty to something they're completely innocent because they can't afford the court. But if you have money, you can fight it. If you don't, if you're someone well, like you or I, you're up the creek without a paddle. Well, Annie, even those with money are struggling now. Um, and the the um, if I'd like, Ken, I'd like to talk about the problem and and what caused it, and and some possible recommendations for the folks in your audience. So, understand <clears throat> the magnitude of this problem. Get this: you have a one in three probability of getting a criminal record of being imprisoned or jailed. One in three folks that are going to dine with you tonight will probably be incarcerated. One-third of your family members face a criminal record. This is horrific. America has the largest prison rate and population in the world. America used to be the land of the free, but now we significantly lead all communists, Islamic dictatorships, and other countries in incarcerating our people. And in 97% of the cases, the government took their Sixth Amendment right to trial away from them. We have more Americans that have a criminal record than a college degree. Now, um, excuse me, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is that, you know, it used to be um, you would be able to know that you had a, a trial. You got accused of something. Hey, it's Perry Mason, and this is what's in the American mind. It's Perry Mason moment. I'm innocent. I'm going to go to trial. I'm going to be proven to be innocent. But instead, the way they do it, and they wear the person down saying, hey, listen, if you do go to trial, blah, 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 so we're going to plea bargain you down. It doesn't yeah, mean necessarily I- that you're guilty, but you're going to plead guilty to this. So once you plead guilty, if it's a felony, forget about ever owning a firearm again. Forget about being able to vote for president ever again. If it's a misdemeanor, heaven knows you may end up being on some sort of a list which will affect your credit rating, your ability to buy a house. You now have this follow you through the rest of your life. You may not be able to get certain jobs depending upon what you pleaded guilty to. These are things that happen that to the court system, hey, we're moving the cases through the court system. It's going through nice and fast. We're moving nice and smoothly. Look how many cases we're closing, but how many lives are they ruining in the interim? Because you're right that now less than 3% of state and federal cases actually go to trial by duty. Less than yeah. 3% of the cases. That's a and tragedy. And that is hoping, and that 6 out of 10 
black or brown Americans are in state prison. Now, six out of ten white Americans are in federal prison. And part of the issue is that no proof is needed for a grand jury indictment. No proof. No proof. And we wind up with less than 3% of our state and federal criminal cases actually receiving a jury trial. So we can no longer rely on the protection of our Constitution, the judicial system, or our Congress for fair or rational or even humane treatment within the criminal justice process. Well, Beth, let me bring in some of the other people that we have in here. Now, AJ, this is a subject perfect for someone like John O'Connor. You've got a lot of uh, people out there that you handle that are within the legal uh, 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 circle that can help address and bring these issues forward to the public. So from a public relations standpoint, how would you handle something like this? Yeah, I mean, this is something which uh, should be exposed more. I mean, it's actually something I'm kind of interested in a bit, too. I mean, I see, a lot of times I'll see these interrogation videos where people just start blabbing to the cops like they can talk their way out of it. I mean, I don't understand why people don't understand their constitutional rights. I mean, for one, keep your mouth shut without a lawyer. It's very simple. So that alone would help. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it seems we have a, a system that kind of encourages incarceration and Obviously, there's, uh, there's private prisons that make profit off that. And we're spending, you know, so much money on that that we go to other things. So I feel like unless it's, uh, you know, a violent crime, there's other ways to punish people that maybe does not drain our money and doesn't encourage this, um, this, this kind of corrupt system we have. So from a PR perspective, I think that's something that should be exploited more and exposed more. Um, and it definitely isn't. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's, I've heard that figure, too, about one-third being able to uh, – you know, having some sort of criminal record, and that's that's disturbing. I don't think a third of the American people are committing an actual crime, but that's what our system you know goes for. And you have sometimes people who are um, pressured to take deals and whatnot. And you can look at what's going on with the uh, the Capitol people. I and mean, then some of them were like you know ushered into the building, and they some of them going to prison for that, which is like crazy when you have um, you know uh, worse criminals that. That get off scot-free. Um, but, you know, the system is just kind of corrupt. I wish it was cleaned up. I don't know how we do that, but it definitely needs to be brought to light. Well, well I think that we have some ideas. But, you know, the source of the problem is that, that when Congress and the and Department of Justice curtailed our Sixth Amendment rights by instituting the plea bargaining without any supervision or oversight. So literally a prosecutor can charge you with all sorts of things, whether they have proof or not, but they're just talking. It's all verbal. Charge you with all sorts of things, make all sorts of um, uh, threats, and, and, and many of them may be very founded, but nevertheless make all sorts of threats as to what rate of imprisonment you're going to have for whatever these charges are that are real or trumped up against you. So when Congress empowered prosecutors with guilty plea bargaining power without oversight or trial or proof, they created this monster. Uh, They coupled it with mandatory sentencing guidelines that leaves judges 
literally powerless. They're just messengers. They're not they're not judging. They're just messengers. Looking at the mandatory sentences guidelines and saying, Okay, here's here you are, fifty years. Then they add five to twenty five years if you had a firearm, even if it was for self defense. So the source of ninety seven percent of the people plea bargaining out of a trial is the lack of oversight. The judge isn't involved. The defense attorney isn't involved in this plea bargaining. It and it can be and it's verbal. So it's a, it's the it's you against the prosecutor. And maybe your prosecutor's a nice guy, but he's his job is to prosecute. So he's going to do his job and he's going to prosecute to the full power of his authority, which is unlimited. Can you believe that? It's unlimited. Well, Beth, can so, I interject in there? Yeah, go ahead, Ted. I was just going to call you in. Um, you know, a lot of that comes from Congress ceding their authority to the administrative state. So they'll go ahead and pass legislation and then leave the rulemaking process up to the judiciary branches that will pass it on to the states. And we've seen this throughout the USDA. The Department of Labor can write their own rules. They can enforce their own rules. They can find the rules, and they can adjudicate the cases. And I had a, a, a farm contractor for labor who got called up by the Department of Labor, and they're going to slap a $16,000 fine on him. And this was the crux of it. They said he, he had uh, treated these people and didn't pay him properly. And I've known this guy for 20 years, and he does everything by the book. But the Department of Labor comes out in force, and they said you owe $16,000, and if you can pay by Friday, we'll reduce it to, I forget, it was twelve or 14000 If not, this will go to court, and it's going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, and you need to let us know now. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that they do, and that goes same into the plea bargaining that you're saying, that they, these people – there, there's no checks and balances on them. Exactly, exactly. So what what our foundation has has done some studying uh, using a lot of of different sources of information, and and everybody is is perplexed. So what we were wondering, and uh, Congressman Yoho, you would have the expertise to to um, speak on this, is we demand Congress to put a pause on this unlimited plea bargaining without oversight. Put a pause on it so that they can get their act together and see what the impact it has been and to rewrite whatever legislation that is needed to provide for oversight the judge has it doesn't even have any oversight, and the judge doesn't even have any flexibility on these mandatory um, limiting sentence guidelines, right? So oh, you're absolutely whole, right. Yes. So if if the public and voters were to were to contact their federal, state, local um, elected 
folks and ask that they put a let's stop this for a while, put a pause on this independent, unsupervised, unsupervised plea bargaining. You know, plea bargaining is a good thing. But when there's no checks and balances, when you're giving one individual prosecutor here and there and all over the country unlimited authority and then paying them, criticizing them if their prosecution rates aren't up, you know, you've created a monster in itself. So would it even be feasible for, for us to ask Congress to put a pause on this legislation so that they can reasonably issue plea bargaining regulations that provide some oversight, some supervision, and give the judges some flexibility in this mandatory sentencing guidelines. And, of course, I think that the well, five you know, to 25 years additional a sentence to, to well, whatever they already put laid out. If you're if you're carrying a firearm, even if it's for self-defense, is in violation of the spirit of the Second Amendment. So it's the whole thing is seems so out of hand. Well, you said is it feasible for Congress? It is feasible. Will Congress do it? My bet <laughs> is they'll they'll have a hearing. They'll have a hearing and they'll spend three to six months on a hearing, um, and then, you know, the election comes up. And they said, if you want anything done in Congress, if you don't get it in that first year, it's not going to happen because they get into campaign right after that. And uh, I found that to be very true because they're so worried about raising money um, yeah. that they spend time doing that. And the hearings, you know, you look at all the hearings they had and what has come of those. I mean, think of Benghazi. I mean, that was one that was highly, yeah. um, highly right. uh, advertised and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, everybody watched as, as the Mueller reports, the January 6th hearing, um, you know, they spent all that time. What's going to come of that? And my bet yeah. is nothing. And so Congress has the ability to, but they need to focus on those things. Right. You know, what I find what I find ironic, Beth, is that, you know, as a police officer, you're told about, you know, ticket quotas. You're not supposed to have ticket quotas, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're told you have to write X amount of tickets, but, you know, you don't have a quota. So, you know, that is a public relations, and uh, A.J. Bruno would uh, agree with this. You know, the public relations, which you put out that the public sees, and it's good PR. Hey, listen, you know, cops don't have ticket quotas, blah, blah, blah. But. District attorneys and assistant district attorneys have certain closure rates. No, that's not a quota, is it? It's not the same thing, isn't it? No, no, you may be harming someone by writing them a ticket, but that's a couple of dollars. But with a a district attorney prosecuting and then doing a plea deal, that's a little bit more than just a few dollars out of your pocket. And the public persona of that, you're tough on law and order, but you're easy on the public on one hand and tough on law. It, it, it's a, an amazing way in which the left approaches the public, right, AJ? Yeah, I mean, that's true. And, uh, you know, this is, I guess this is a complicated subject, too, because um, obviously you want law enforcement in some of these dangerous cities and places like that, and you want them 
um, to not be defunded and that and that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, out in like uh, suburban, I mean, a lot of these cops have quotas that they might say they're not, but they do. Um, they might harass like law-abiding citizens because they're bored. I mean, it does happen. So uh, you know, you want to have um, you want to have law enforcement where you need it, going after actual crime. And we've seen a lot of you know these riots and stuff that um, were not properly taken care of. Um, and as for the, the people, uh, the DA and that sort of thing, well, I mean, just look at, uh, I guess, look at New York where they just said that they were going after a particular person for political reasons. Like, you should be focusing on um, finding real crimes and not targeting people for political reasons. So that's something that's bothered me, too. We have DAs and that sort of thing, attorney generals, who are partisan. And how can you trust somebody who hates everything you believe in if they're coming after you? So I think that kind of presents a problem for our legal system. And, you know, I don't want any sort of politization um, when it comes to that. And so I don't know how we fix that, but I think that's an issue. And, uh, you know, I mean, just look at uh, the the current uh, U.S. Attorney General. I think, like, Merrick Garland is just possibly the worst one ever. He's terrible. And um, he gets political all the time. So when you're looking at people who are involved in, like, law enforcement, um, they need to be, you know, nonpartisan, unbiased. Um, actually play by the rules and not uh, just try to score points. And we don't have that, and I find it very troubling. Well, Beth, one of the things you point out, which is I've said for a long time, you bring something before a grand jury and you can indict a ham sandwich. And we Mm -hmm. see that a perfect example with Donald Trump. I mean, when you break down what Alvin Bragg did with this prosecution, it hasn't got a leg to stand on. But this is what we're finding because they're bringing into the grand jury things that are not even admissible in a court of law and using evidence that would never, ever be presented. So the rules of evidence is completely different, and rules of conduct are completely different for going into a grand jury. And yet these very same men and women, the same pool that you're putting in for the grand jury – ends up being your jury trial. So these people are now being told that this is admissible. But once you get into the courtroom, well, now, um, I saw this in the newspaper, and, well, maybe. So we already have a jury pool that has been highly tainted with corrupt evidence. So how are you proposing that we reclaim our judicial system, something that, you know, another congressman falling in the steps of Ted uh, Yoho could uh, bring forward and bring us back to a constitutional republic. Yeah, well, uh, I think that we all agree that Washington is so broke. Um, but I think that we can tackle this requesting a pause, for instance, in this um, plea bargaining uh, without oversight at the local and state level as well. So, Of course, we should address all three levels simultaneously, but I think we can, we have far more of a heavy hand at the local level and then at the state level as opposed to the federal level. I would agree with uh, you, Beth. Yes. So, uh, thank you. So, if we tackle this with, with our, in our neighborhood, with our city council, with our uh, county prosecutors uh, that are elected uh, with our state, with our rep legislature, with our governor's office, with our secretary of state. If we 
tackle this on all levels and and to de- to demand justice and give them some of these facts and figures i think that that the public um will be astounded you you and i know that you and i are not criminals and we know that a third of our family and a third of our neighbors are not criminals but nevertheless, our probability of getting a criminal record or having our assets frozen where we can't even take care of our family, we can't even pay for a defense of attorney, is, is, is ludicrous. So I think we must all sound the alarm at every level we can, the people next door, our neighbors, and certainly those that we elected in our county, and certainly those we elected in our state. And... You know, last but not least, the tackle tackle our, our federal uh, because their their lack of oversight in providing any oversight is is just so ludicrous. That, um, but I think that we we must all act at all levels and do all we can. And I think, you know, speaking out on radio or, or TV or to your neighbor, that we have to sound the alarm because. If this is growing, it's growing. It's almost up to 98% of the people um, uh, don't opt for a trial because they fear a more severe sentence. And and the facts show that if you do opt for a trial, you do get a more severe sentence. So, you know, the whole spirit of the, of the Sixth Amendment and the Second Amendment and our Constitution is, is just being ignored and which is a setup for failure failure on every every move we make well you're right if you go to court you get a higher sentence and that's exactly what they told that farmer you know if you pay today it's this amount but if you go to trial it's going to be the full amount and you're going to have to go to atlanta from florida yeah yeah it's you know they have offset the cost of having jury trials, the cost of to the taxpayer of paying the room and board and care and guard, all the services that we have to provide to our prisons and jails. So providing for the full-time care of a prisoner in our prisons or, or jail is going to be a lifetime expense as opposed to the expense of of going through the due process of of the Sixth Amendment with your right to a trial, your right to witnesses. Because uh, in this jury, in this um, plea bargaining, it's just the defendant and the prosecutor. There's, there's no proof. There's no witnesses. There's no oversight. It's, 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 it's uh, a monarchy. <laughs> so well, you know, well, I was, I was going to bring this in, bring bring AJ into this also, because from a public relations point of view, if you're a you're in government, you're a liberal government, you're there, the prosecutor. Now we have a massive attack on our Second Amendment right of you know gun ownership protection, self preservation, but that's been being attacked left and right. Washington State is the latest example on the gun control wokeness. So now you have the average citizen, someone like you and me, 
that, hey, listen, oh, well, if I step out of my house and I'm using a concealed carry, heaven forbid I get into an argument with someone in the grocery store and they realize that I'm carrying now that I've got a gun charge against me. When All I'm doing is I'm having a conversation with someone, but, hey, listen, I felt threatened because I knew they were wearing a gun. Now, all of a sudden, we've got a gun charge against us, and now we've got a revolving door where the criminals are being let out, but we are mm-hmm. being forced in. So, AJ, this is a massive, good propaganda tool the left is using on us. They're bludgeoning us with our own laws and wokeness. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, going after law-abiding citizens with with guns. Um, you know, if anything... You know, because all these these problems keep keep happening with shootings and that sort of thing. If anything, I think if more law-abiding citizens were able to carry, it would discourage that. Because if some crazy person tried something, they would probably not last very long. So I think that would be a solution, but that hasn't been pursued really. But um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just a target of just the radical left in general to go after the Second Amendment, and I mean that's uh, that's enshrined in the Constitution. You're not supposed to be able to do that, but I mean they have a history of um, going and dismantling things or making stuff up, like you know the right to an abortion, which does not exist in the Constitution. So they will either ignore things that are blatantly there or they'll put things there that are not there. So really, it doesn't really mean anything to this this radical group, which um, seems to have unfortunately a lot of influence nowadays. So um, you know our Second Amendment rights are are not safe, and um, even from a PR perspective. You know, if you if you go on the mainstream media and you're um, uh, taking a position which uh, they're not, they don't find um, acceptable on, on gun rights. Um, you know, you could be again canceled like anything else. So yeah, it's uh, it's a, again it's a, a delicate subject. And um, if you have a viewpoint where you know our Second Amendment rights are core, they should not be able to be infringed upon, um, you know, you get attacked for that. So it's, uh, it's a kind of an ugly situation. Well, Beth, here they're using the laws against us. They've actually dismantled the Sixth Amendment, our right to a, a, to a trial by a, a jury of our peers. And they've been dismantling it bit by bit. But they've gotten to the point where even if you say the wrong thing publicly, you can now be hit with a defamation suit or heaven forbid they find some way in which to criminalize that, it is now a scary system that we have with our courts. And you're working to repair that. Now, you have a series of, of things that you suggest, legislations and other items in which to bring us back on track. How successful do you think we can be in pursuing this? Well, I think I think our greatest success will be to start at the local level and the state level, and um, and 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 sounding the alarm um, that you know we need to tell folks ASAP to protect their assets from being frozen when their family breadwinner is arrested. Because uh, they're leaving the family without without a, a way to be housed, to be fed, to continue on. So I'm not a financial expert by any means, and I don't know how one actually protects your assets, but that is something that each individual is going to have to think through and deal with. So 
I think that's that's the primary that we you know are, we must protect ourselves and our assets, and we have to learn how we can be affected and and what to do. And the um, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers is a is a a group uh, out of Washington D.C. just a few blocks from Congress. And, and they're a source of information for Congress and for the public. And they have put together some videos, some um, panel discussions to educate the public. They have one video called The Vanishing Trial. And, oh, my goodness, that just summarizes and makes so clear on a video to folks. It's, it's plain language, not legal mumbo-jumbo, easy to understand, and definitely alarming. So I think we need to educate ourselves by doing um, uh, research, such as watching that, that video, um, some of their panel discussions, some reading the report that we put out on We Can Be Heroes Foundation website, and the full report, some 87 pages that the um, National Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys put out for for Congress and the public. Um, And we tried to summarize it because it it is 87 pages, so we summarized it into a short form uh, on our website. But even at that, it's kind of lengthy. So we're going to post these uh, executive summary talking points. We'll post some samples of the correspondence um, talking points that, that folks can uh, speak speak at their local and state level, and um, just to get folks started. But we 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 have to demand um, for the protection of our own family, for the protection of those at our dinner table tonight. We've got to get off off our duff. You know that's so, a serious thought that when you you talk about trying to protect your assets, but not everyone has the ability to do that. Um, they don't have the financial means to hire someone to help protect their assets. You know, uh, a lot of people don't even have anything put aside, much less, you know, a small savings account. So you have people that are living paycheck to paycheck and suddenly find themselves in legal difficulty for whatever silly reason it is. I mean, a perfect example is the over-prosecution of the January 6th group. You know, how many of these these men and women went up there uh, just to protest outside and then get caught up in something they, in many ways, they didn't have true control over? I mean, there's a lot of questions mm-hmm. dealing with whether or not they were escorted in or not. And a lot of innocent people got tagged and are pleading guilty to crimes that would have been a ticket, maybe a $100 right. ticket. And mm-hmm. uh, Ted, I, I know you're back in, so welcome back, Ted. We missed you. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for that. No, I, I had to take off at two, and I just wanted to come back and say thank you for allowing me to be on and uh, with AJ and Chris and Beth. I appreciate what you do. Carry on the good work. But that January 6th, there has been no due process in that, and we handle, I mean, we might as well be in Guantanamo or some dark site <laughs> the way we're treating our own people. Well, Ted, it's always a pleasure, and I know you're going out of town Same for here. a little bit. So as soon as you get yep. back in town, you give me a shout. We'll get you back on. Mighty fine. Y'all take care. Have a great weekend. Thank you. 
All right. God bless. All right. Ted, Yoho. Thanks, Former Ted. congressman of Florida. I love I love my uncle Ted. <laughs> he was a good congressman, and I miss him. Anyway, um, but uh, this from from a public standpoint, uh, AJ, are you getting a lot of calls for people asking to talk about the January sixth and the travesty that's going on with that prosecution? Uh, that's kind of a hot button topic, so it's not something that they normally want to talk about um, in a lot of outlets. So. Um, I wouldn't say it's high in demand uh, sometimes, but a lot of places will shy away from that. Um, but to me, the main problem with this is with all the, the real problems going on, just the uh, nonstop obsession, I guess, in the mainstream media and, you know, with the left about this, um, it just never ends. Like, this is, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that big of a deal compared to a lot of other problems we have. Um, and, you know, they didn't care about all the Antifa and beyond riots, all the damage done there. That's not an important matter. Um, you know, actually people are getting actually killed and, and, and from real problems every day, and that doesn't get the attention that this gets. So, and I'm just tired of hearing about it at this point. I mean, would I have been there personally? No. But uh, most of the things that went on there would be either not a crime or, you know, petty trespassing at worst, even though it's a public building. But instead, we're, we're making a huge deal out of it. We're spending all this money with these prosecutions, forcing people into these plea bargains and that sort of thing. And it's an abuse of the, 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 the justice system. So um, it's just a waste of our resources and time. And I just, I'm just sick of hearing about it. And so, yeah, most places don't want to touch it. Uh, they don't want to talk about it. Um, or, on the other hand, they're gung-ho in the other direction. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's not something which is really getting uh, that much light um, uh, from a PR perspective now. Wow. Well, Chris, you're still with us, aren't you? I'm right here. (laughs) Well, feel free to chime in. You have a lot to say on, on a number of facets of this complex issue, and that's great. I'm concerned, though, that you don't seem to have a specific plan for coping with any of it. And I hope that doesn't seem too critical, but I would like to suggest that as I have an organization here that's limited in its funds and and time and energy, we're focusing on on very specific local issues that we can contend with. We have actual written plans to do that. And I'm wondering if you have anything along those lines, because you do mention frequently the importance of operating at the local level. And as General Flynn says, you know, local action equals uh, national consequences. And so we can, if we focus on something local and and prevail, succeed, win, um, then we can begin to affect the larger the larger picture. But if we're scattering our energy across a whole spectrum of different things, we're likely to get frustrated and spend our energy um, fruitlessly. Do you have any response to that? Oh, you're talking to me? Okay. (laughs) I know she does. That the same thing that we demand um, uh, at the local level, we would demand uh, on up the the ladder. So uh, we demand um, uh, prosecutors. Uh, We demand flexibility to the judge in these mandatory sentencing guidelines. Uh, we, we don't need to have judges if if somebody else is going to dictate what the what the uh, term of sentences sentencing is. We just need a messenger. 
somebody to read the guidelines and say, here's your here's your sentence. We don't need a judge. So well, no. what we do need, of course, is our judge, is our Sixth Amendment rights at the local level, at the state level and up. So the same action that you take at the local level, you'd take it that you'd take elsewhere. It's the same it's the same bureaucracy working against the same same sec, sixth amendment. So well, sounding the alarm, getting on getting on radio to news media's websites, wherever, telling your neighbor the same action that you take when your when your water bill goes up, you should take for restoring our sixth amendment rights. We've got to get off our duff and get in the face politely, respectfully with those to educate everyone. Well, and educating let's... our elected officials at all levels is the is is step one. But telling no. everyone we know this danger. This is not talk. This is reality. This is fear. Well Beth, I want to mention I want to mention that on your website, We Can Be Heroes, if they go scroll down further on, you have something called the trial penalty, the Sixth Amendment right to trial on the verge of extinction and how to save it. It is, I think it's like an 80-some-odd page document. In it, you have principles and recommendations in the trial penalty report, and you've got 10 principles that you list and then 10 recommendations in how to implement these principles that people can download for free this document and take it to their elected officials, whether it's their county council, city council, whatever, or on up the ladder to their local prosecutor and to their state attorney general and say, are these guidelines being followed? These are what we recommend, and what are the statistics, and how can we make the system better? So you do have something actually active on the website that people can download and look at. And you also have case uh, situations in there also, giving examples how the criminal system has been used against innocent people that have actually physically gone to jail when they were 100% innocent. Right. Because that is such a lengthy report, and and the report that the um, – uh, National Association of Criminal Lawyers put out is is massive uh, because the problem is massive. It's not a it's not a quick a quick uh, solution because it is there are so many facets to it that have gone astray, and so that's why I was recommending a pause. It sounded like Congressman Yoho. Um, you know, felt like that was uh, possible because, you know, the whole legislative system is so huge, you know, no one on earth knows what knows what it is. But pause on some of the obvious injustices um, doesn't seem too unreasonable to me. So... And that same request should go to our local prosecutors. No well, one is exempt from, from this problem. I mean, it's a reality, and it and it is it's fear. 
Now, Chris, how can, how can your nonprofit step in here? Because here she's got a lot of examples in here where there were prosecutions unjustly, and there are people that you know are actual faces of, of this disaster. And I think the two of you can work together because you're both in Florida too. Great. Well, look, yeah, we as citizens, we have limited time and resources, mm-hmm. and – this problem is all around us, no question about it. It's kind of that, that old thing of the enemies surrounding us, so we can't possibly fail to, to hit them no matter which way we shoot. But in this case, um, I'm concerned that you don't, frankly, I hope I don't seem terribly critical, but I, I'm concerned that you don't seem to have a focused target. Um, and that there's a principle of warfare that you might want to contemplate. It's called defeat in detail. You can look it up on the Internet. And what it what it is about, and Stonewall Jackson used it very effectively in the Civil War, where by concentrating all of your forces on one target at a time, you can prevail and use that as momentum to move to the next one, rather than trying to go in this direction and that direction and be at the federal level, be at the local level, be at the state level. You know, try to concentrate on something that's right there within your reach. You know, I don't know where you are in Florida, but I know, for example, that we've had that one prosecutor that the governor took down over in Tampa because he didn't want to enforce the law. You know, that that's an example. Now, the governor did that, but I'm thinking that in your jurisdiction, you probably have somebody that you could you could take out, so to speak, politically. And that would make it a worthy platform for your positions and an opportunity to have some direct effect. Interesting, Beth. Um, yeah, um, that that all sounds sounds fine and dandy, and we too are a um, limited um, nonprofit. We have no salaried employees. We're all volunteers. We don't have an office. We all work from home, and most of our income goes to help homeless veterans and those in need. So, teaching the Constitution and our founding principles is is what is driving our motivation to spread the word on this alarming situation. So um, nobody died and left us in charge of legislation where we can, you know, enact, enact anything. But we can sound the alarm, and that is what we're doing. We can provide education, and that is what we're doing. And we can demand our local folks to comply with the full spirit of the Sixth Amendment Revised plea bargaining. We like plea bargaining. Everybody likes plea bargaining. But you do not have a monarchy. You do not have a king prosecutor in charge of the whole shebang. So we just want to see um, supervised, some oversight, and who better to oversee what is going on on a, on a case than the judge. But they've taken all the authority away from the judge. So, and many judges have spoken out, but you'll never hear any of this stuff on um, on uh, television, on the mainstream. Um, so that's why we recommend that folks uh, post this stuff on their social media, contact their local radio and TV channels to speak out against it. And we, what we're asking these folks to do is educate the public, educate their viewers, educate their listeners, 
on the massiveness of of this issue and to help educate their viewers to prepare themselves. Now, now that's that's the task that each individual will have to take their own responsibility to prepare themselves, whether they have assets or not, whether they have children or not. You know, if 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 you're expecting your house to burn down, you're going to have take a little bit of precaution. If you're not expecting it, you're probably lackadaisical and will be stunned and surprised when that reality happens. So ours is a mission of education. Ours is a mission of, of action at the local level. And the same thing you do at the local level, you do at the state level, the county level, the city level, the federal level. If you're writing a letter, send it to everyone. So the same action, but we're just asking people to get educated. But there's a reality, and the numbers are growing. For uh, for America to have the highest imprisonment rate in the world, for our state to have the highest imprisonment of black and brown people, and our federal government to have the highest imprisonment of white people, what is going on? I don't well, know the answer. No, but what you do have also on your website is an education thing uh, called the 1776 Report, the President's Advisory 1776 Commission, which was issued January of 2021. And you break down the way in which to educate and bring our education system back into the founding principles that we were built upon which you then back up with the trial penalty report by saying, hey, listen, this is what we're based upon. This is what we need to educate not just our kids but our elected officials on. They should know the Constitution. They should know the founding documents. But it's amazing how many don't know them. I'm sorry, Ted's gone because I'd say AOC at this moment. (laughs) 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 But... But you do offer materials in which people can then do that. But I find a lot of hope, Chris, is that now we've got the growing movement of education dollars following the child. And this is a movement going nationwide. Here in South Carolina, we're on the verge of passing that. And my fingers are crossed right now. We've been trying to get this through for the last three years where the education dollars follow the child, not the child following the dollar. This way we control what the child then does learn. Instead of wokeism, we find ourselves pushing more towards traditional education. And traditional education institutions are growing by leaps and bounds. So there's a call out there for something like what Beth has on her website, which is, I find very amazing. And um, I wish I could hook the two of you up to work together, maybe some sort of a film that you can do to help promote her. Well, thank you. I appreciate I, I'm more than happy to sign up for it. We've um, we've shelved several projects lately. Uh, one having to do with homeschooling and HB1, which we supported. Um, another having to do with illegal immigration, which is a, out of control and getting worse. Um, and so we've, but unfortunately, my resources are limited. As so, we are going to focus on our super PAC. Now we're going to use video, radio, print, and so forth in support of those efforts. But that's where it's going. We're not in the documentary business per se right now. But thank you. We're going to concentrate on changing the political climate right here where we are, where we can have some direct effect, and that's how we're, we're approaching this. But thank well, you. 
And, and AJ, well, you have two individuals working on a local level here in the state of, of Florida. What advice would you give them from a public relations point of view in which to help them get their message out and avenues that you, maybe you can direct them towards? Well, they can always call me. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm glad for that. Like, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's important just to get uh, their name out there as much as possible. If it's a local level, then, you know, reach out to all the local media they can and get their name out as much as possible. Um, you know, obviously get a public event. Um, get, I mean, exposure is the main thing. And uh, it depends, I guess, what office you're running for. But if it's local level, I feel like you can do that kind of grassroots and cheaply. So, um, you know, I would just say they have to uh, actually make the effort to do that. And if you've got a good message and you're actually promoting yourself, I think it's, that's kind of a, a big chunk of the battle right there. Well, I'm sorry, Adam wasn't able to join us because I had so many other things I wanted to talk to him about because uh, he is the CEO of your company. And you are your second in command, as I see now here. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I bow mean, to the I, master. I, I'm the Vader to a stop with him, you know. <laughs> I bow to the master. <laughs> but you guys handle a lot of a lot of great people out there, uh, which is like uh, Janine Pirro, which I've had on the show. She and I get along because, you know, you got the cop and the judge from New York. <laughs> You can imagine what goes on between the two of us. Um, you also have Corey Lewandowski, uh, David Bossy, uh, Haley Barber, Steve Hilton, Anthony Scaramucci, and very, very much more. So if people are looking to see who you have and where they might be, they would go to your website, which is AMWPR? Yeah, they can find us there. Um, you know, It's pretty easy to reach out on the website. They can feel free to email me. It's just uh, AJAY at AMWPR.com. So, um, yeah, uh, pretty easy to find. We've worked with all sorts of people and, um, you know, always happy to take on anyone who wants to get their name out there, TV, radio, newspapers. We do it all. So, yeah. Well, God bless for the hard work you and Adam do. And I'll be talking to you because now I've got to start booking guests for next week. So I'll be on the phone Wonderful. with you shortly. <laughs> right. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right, take care, AJ. You too. All right. Man, um, both uh, Chris and you and Beth are doing fantastic stuff and moving Florida forward. And it's individuals like you and little groups like you here and there that start the, the ball rolling. You start pushing it down the hill, and the rest of us are starting to pick it up and run with it. And God bless you, Beth, for the hard work you do because you've been doing it for quite a while now. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. As have you. Yeah, we're. I mean, we're all in this together, and that, that is that is that you know we're all neighbors. This is our community, country. This is our constitution, and we're all in this together. And um, you know, you talk about the candidates. Um, I think uh, Congressman Yoho mentioned. You know that there's a very short window when you can or you can get Congress to um, to, to move because they're. Uh, politicking. So, um, but for um, uh, elected officials uh, out running for different offices, uh, we all ask them various questions. So one of these questions has got to be from now on, what have you done to reduce the probability of my imprisonment? What have you done? So, yeah. um Mm-hmm. So that's got to be on our checklist that when we interview and attend um, 
different forums for for candidates and uh, educational events about elections. That this has got to be, this is so real. It's it's, it's encroaching a hundred percent. We're a little over ninety-seven percent now, pushing ninety-eight percent of folks that will not get a right to trial. We're encroaching a hundred percent. So it can't get more serious than that. No, it so, can't. Uh, well, yeah. so be, this, best this people is, can find reality. you. Well, best people can find you. Your foundation is called We Can Be Heroes Foundation dot org. There's a link on the show page. People can click on that and go directly there. Get the uh, the materials for the 1776 report, as well as the um, the trial penalty report, as well as all the other great work you do with heroes and honoring them. And where people can post pictures of their heroes up on your website. Yeah. God bless you, Beth, for the hard work you do. We'll have you back soon. Okay, take care. Thank you so much. All right. Enjoy the day. God bless All right. you. All right, Beth Heath. So, uh, Chris, we've got our next victims up here in the studio, our final victims for the afternoon. Uh, they've been on the show before, and I love having them back. We've got Alan Chasen and Ed Ford, both authors of Postcards Through Hell, Good afternoon, Alan and Ed. How are you today? And someone's got noise in the background. Yeah, somebody's got feedback. Yeah, someone's got a speaker on. All right, it looks like it might be Alan. Alan, if you've got it on audio speaker, turn the speaker off and use a headset or something, because it's a feedback there. Sorry about that. We got Ed with us? Yes, Ed's right here. Okay, so we're going to chastise Alan. Let's see if we can bring him back on. <laughs> no, no, no. All right. Shame on you, Alan. Turn turn the speaker off. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we'll give him a few more minutes. So uh, it looks like he's trying to call back in. But we'll see what happens here. But welcome back onto the show. And we're glad to have you back with the final book, Postcards Through Hell, which people can get on paperback or up on um, Amazon. There's a link up on the show page. People can go to that download from Amazon, plus I've got your website, postcardsthroughhell.com, as well as the PonyExpress.net that people can go to to get your book. It is an interesting book, a book that you and, and Alan lived and wrote about, and i got to tell you, I did do something, and you know me, uh, I always try to, when I have special guests, I try to do something special for them. The dedication today was to Army Sergeant Eric E. Williams, just to let you know. Oh. Thank you. Yeah. So that shows I read the book. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, is Alan on yet? Um, Alan's not back just yet. Just waiting for him oh. to pull back in. Okay. What's the name? Yeah. Because I know but Alan I... and uh, Sergeant Williams had the uh, had that relationship where they were helping each other out and always hanging out, talking and stuff. And uh, yeah. yeah. For him to, uh, yeah, yeah, for him to get killed uh, the way he did, like he was on his way home, actually. Yeah. So. Unfortunate. Just six days out from actually getting on board the plane and heading home. Uh, yeah, Alan is exactly. having a problem. He can't figure out how to sign in. <laughs> There's no video. All right. He's got to do no video. I'm trying to tell him. Uh, just call. 
<laughs> okay, yeah. All right, we we have not perfected the video yet. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I had gotten sick, and then my co-host fell and broke his neck, and then I I just got over COVID. So of course, you know, if it's one thing, it's not something else. So we have not been able to yeah. perfect and do that yet. So I'm trying to send him, telling him just to call, <laughs> and hopefully he'll call back in. <laughs> yeah, he, he just texted me. <laughs> yes. And sorry, of course, of course, uh, he would know because he's a yeah, medic. I just but, let uh, him know just the audio, no video. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. I haven't perfected that yet. If if you know of someone who would love to help produce my show and get the video running, you let me know. I'd be glad to entertain them. <laughs> See if yeah. we can get this up another step. Okay. And we do have Alan with us now. We're yeah. making fun of you, Alan. Hey, Al. Yeah. Um, I'm technically right. not. I'm sorry, what Still was there? that? Yeah, was it? Yep. Go yep. ahead. Let, let me ask you a question, if I may. What is the name of the book, please? Postcards Through Hell. Postcards Thank Through you. Hell. And I've got a guest co-host, Chris Kassler, with us, uh, Ed and Alan, uh, because Curtis is out doing something highly political and important, and I'm like a second-class citizen today, so... We're fudging through it. But anyway, I wanted to let you know, Alan, uh, because he was a friend of yours, that I started off the show with a dedication to your friend, Army Sergeant Eric E. Williams. That's how the show started. Uh, yeah. Eric uh, Eric wasn't a member of the Pony Express, but he helped us out quite a bit. That's why we uh, we honored him in the book, because he, he provided us with uh, medical supplies and, and uh if he was ever around, we could use him for medevac services because he he was uh, he, he's a hero for sure. All right, now I'm going to ask why did the two of you write this book and why did you find it was so important that you had to put this book out? Well, we, I, we I, started off with uh, uh, trying to get on a miniseries that uh, somebody had uh, turned us on to a writer that was going to do a, a couple of pilots. And uh, he, I think he wrote three episodes in the pilot, and then he just quit writing at one point, and maybe a year or two went by, and Ed and I just started talking, thinking, well, we, we need to do something in order to get it out, so why not just write a book? Um, Ed had some memoirs. Uh, I had uh, a journal that I kept, and we just kind of married the two up together and created a timeline, and, and uh, that's how the story evolved. Well, Ed? Yeah, yeah, that, that's good answer. Went, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. I mean, and then uh, we started off with the, uh, you know, uh, one of the guys was like, "Hey, I know some people. Give me all your memoirs and stuff," but nothing. It, there was never any forward momentum on it. So what I did was uh, January 2017. I was like, that was like a resolution of mine. I'm going to get this book written, and uh, so I ended up. Uh, calling Al and uh, we uh, we ended up deciding that it was going to be us too. He's going to be because I know he had been uh, was a published author before. He had gotten some stuff published in uh, magazines on articles he had, that he had written. So I we were just going to build off of that. Um, and then after that, uh, yeah, it just uh, we we just stayed on it. I had another buddy of mine, Colin Heaton. He's a military historian. And he contributes uh, to YouTube 
and he uh, and he's a published author too, so he 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 actually helped us out a lot, uh, getting the ball rolling. Uh, which has a very rough uh, manuscript back in the early days, and uh, he 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 threw some stuff in there, and then uh, we just started building off of that, and then uh, he got us to uh, Scott Husing, another published author, mm-hmm. our retired Marine major, and he wrote Echo and Ramadi, so we read yep. that, and I was like, yeah. I remember uh, reading that, and it was like it just brought you back into the heat of Iraq in the summertime. I was like, ah. Oh. But uh, so we 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 kept him as an asset, and uh, he was always there for us. Uh, he's the one that he read our manuscript. We we sent out copies of the manuscript to a bunch of people. Everyone said, "Oh yeah, great story, great manuscript." He was like, "Great story," but you know, he told us what we needed to hear to get the thing uh, uh, published. He didn't tell us what we wanted to hear. And uh, I think that that was critical in uh, getting this book going forward. And then, uh, yeah, the uh, going through the whole editing process, ghostwriters, uh, Jesus. Uh, Al, did I forget anything? Uh, just uh, um, Sylvia Mendoza ended up being the editor for us, and uh, she gave us a crash yeah, course yeah. writing and, and whatnot. And, and oh, yeah. She offered us a lot of perspective on what we were trying to do, yeah. creating a team and, and, um, you know, talking about brotherhood, uh, just get the storyline going, you know? Yeah. So it, it's funny because, um, uh, Oh, good Lord. My mind just went into a blank. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not, we're shooters. We're not writers. <laughs> yeah. That's why it took like five years. I mean, we no. just, I mean, there's a, yeah, uh, you had a couple of knuckle draggers uh, uh, writing a book here, and I was like, "Oh, guys, come on!" <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's funny because there was a couple of names you threw out there. Like Scott is a friend of mine, and um, Colin Heaton. Oh, good lord! Uh, I've known Colin forever. Uh, he's a very oh, special and 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 great friend of mine. I met him originally. Oh, geez, um, maybe twelve years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and he's he's a very special good friend of mine. Yes, just right across the border here from South Carolina. <laughs> One of these days we'll get together again. Yeah, and he's still actively involved in our project. So, uh, you know, from time to time we'll we'll get uh, messages from him on you know how to how to proceed further and and what now. Uh, currently, we're doing our own marketing, uh, just part of our publication contract. So it's been difficult to kind of get the story out there. Matter of fact. I probably had someone on the show just a little while ago, a publish, uh, uh, public relations that probably – I've got two names I'm going to throw at you when I get off air. Uh, you can contact them to help you get the, uh, the public relations. Okay? Yeah, Great yeah. People. All right, so I'm just going to make myself a notation to do that. Otherwise, I'm going to forget. So I'm going to call – I'm going to call the two AJs. And I will make sure I make a notation here, and I'm putting this aside so I don't forget it. And I'm putting it on the other okay. keyboard. So in order for me to close my computer down, I have to move this piece of paper. <laughs> so I will make sure I follow up after we get off air to definitely hook you up with these two publicists to get your ball rolling. And one thing I like, Colin is still doing, I believe, work with the History Channel. It be interesting to yeah. get some of these segments to put up onto the History Channel. Yeah, he was talking about... Uh 
uh, getting that ball, <coughs> getting that ball going to uh, uh, to uh, you know uh, for a documentary. Yeah, we so, we submitted a, submitted a media package to uh, History Channel, uh, Discovery, um, uh, National Geographic, uh, all the above. We're just waiting to hear back from them. All right, now the book is based upon the two of you. And, um, Ed, you went by the handle of Hammer, and Alan, you went by yeah. the handle of Chase. <laughs> and there's a lot of humorous stuff about you in there, Alan. And it's just kind of like you open the book up with you falling out of the back of the truck. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, yeah, I jumped out of the truck because the uh, um, the cargo trucks were trying to back out. There were an ambush up front, and they uh, were trying to reverse out and, uh, one of them actually kind of drove off the edge, and we didn't want to lose the, the cargo, so I jumped out to to get them to go forward, you know. Yeah. That, and of course, Hammer's, you know, you know, bricks in the in his car. It's like, all right, all right, where are you going? What's going on? Did I lose my medic yeah. here? <laughs> yeah. But what what you have is you're telling the story. Now you both are military, but now you are working as government contractors. And a lot of people don't understand that because you think a government contractor sitting in a building somewhere, blah, 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 doing, you know, painting their fingernails, uh, whatever, or picking their nose. But you are there as a government contractor, but you're doing military work. Yep. Yeah, it uh, All right, well, let's start with Ed first, and then we'll go to Alan to come in second. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was a military-style mission. I mean – we were uh, pretty much we were delivering the mail for the uh, troops in Afghanistan, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, geez, it, it was just uh, what uh, that was the job there. I mean, the military could have handled the uh, the mail drops, but when they put those when they put those mailbox those boxes of mail on the uh, trucks. Mail is actually not a high priority because you know they got the beans, bullets, band-aids that got to get downrange. Mail is not a high priority for the military on those uh, uh, convoys, so they subcontracted it out to uh, you know let a civilian company do it, and that that was our one one of two jobs: deliver the mail to the uh, select drop sites for the troops. And then also deliver secure loads for another client that we had uh, over there uh, to hit the, to their uh, drop sites. Uh, and once again, I mean, we were pretty good at it. We had like a what ninety-eight percent drop rate. There's only a couple of times we didn't get the mail to where it needed to go, and that was because of a uh, enemy attack. And uh, no, uh, yeah, they had a bird mail truck once, so. Well, Alan, uh, you, Alan, you also military, then you decided to become a contractor, but you're a medic. And here where Hammer is, he's the leader of the, the group. He's doing the logistics, making sure everything's going on. You're in the butt end of the, of the convoy as the medic, you know, picking up the pieces that come behind. Um, as a contractor, how do you do that? Um medics are in high demand when it comes to security contracting. I mean, just about every yeah. security contracting, whether it's a static gig or a, a, a mobile operation, 
uh, they all require medics at one point. And um, uh, one of one of the teams got hit pretty bad early on, and they didn't have a medic on there, and they had sustained some injuries. And um, um, Mike Hardy and, and Ed dropped my name in the hat, and that's basically how I got the job. I was actually working for Sock in Iraq, uh, providing uh, coverage for other medics that were going. So I'd be hopping from Bob to Bob to Bob uh, until uh, that event happened. And then once I got up into Afghanistan, the primary job was uh, uh, convoy operations as a uh, combat medic. Now, this security contractors didn't think medics were really necessary at one point, did they, Ed? Um, no. I mean, ever since I've been security contracting, we always had uh, – maybe it was just because I was – lucky that uh, I fell in on the right contracts. When I was on uh, every contract I've ever had, uh, there was always medical assets there. Uh, yeah, with Dyncor, Crucible, yeah, with uh, the Shark teams. Um, yeah. I think, we always I think, ran with medics. Yeah, at yeah, this point, we always had good the, the startup was relatively new, so they they didn't have all their boots on the ground. Uh, they they started running missions uh, early on, and I'm not, I'm sure they had intentions of bringing medics on board. It was just it just so happened that you know the guys that were running these missions were trained um, as combat lifesavers, uh, but that that's you know the bare minimum when it comes to tactical combat casualty care. Um, you know, having a, a, a certified medic that's got some kind of background. Uh, uh, conflict experience um, is is essential to uh, mission success. So um, it was just a fluke, I guess, that that, that mission had happened and, and somebody got hurt, and they just said, "Okay, we're good. we're not going to run any more missions until we get a medic on board." Well, contractors were treated completely different than from military. You were not given the same priority when it came to supplies and stuff. Was that true? Oh yeah, that's yeah big. Now there, yeah, because uh, once again, contracting is a business, and uh, that's how they're going to uh, make their money. Is uh, the less they have to spend on us, uh, the more money that the corporate's going to make. So uh, when they get these contracts, there's going to be a list of like a bear, hey, here's what you need to provide to get started. And it's going to be X amount of vehicles, X amount of M4s, X amount of Glock pistols. Uh, you know, you're going to live in your own compound off off of a military base. You're going to, uh, you know, cook your own meals. That sort of stuff there. That's all lined out with your first. I mean, there's a lot of detail, administrative details that go into these contracts. These, uh, yes, what they call scope of work, sows. It goes over everything from the uh, what the job is, what your mission is, where you're going to be moving the loads to, down to uh, all the admin and logistics. Where do you get to eat at? <clears throat> Who's responsible for your medical care? You know, stuff like that. Well, you your boots on the ground, but then you've got yeah. the pencil pushers up in their little ivory towers. There was a lot of clashing yeah. be- between there, trying to get yeah, them to understand it, what you needed. Yeah, sometimes there is because they're looking at the bottom line and you're sitting there on the ground saying, I need more support. Well, more support costs more money. And 
if the program itself is just barely making by, getting by uh, profit-wise, they're going to be hesitant to spend that money. I remember, uh, geez, uh, spring of 2011, corporate guy came out, and I was uh, the director of uh, operations, and I was on the ground, and I was talking to him. I was like, look, you've got to go one or two ways here. Either A, you've got to give us 100% support and bring in new vehicles, and that was a big thing. You know, these vehicles were going down hard all the time. You've got to give us new vehicles or B, uh, you know, pull the plug on it. And, uh, geez, I think it was like two or three weeks after that was uh, when Jeff Bedford's team got hit, and we lost five guys, and they just said, all right, never mind, we're going to pull the plug. And wow. uh, the, they sold it off to uh, – they sold the uh, program off to another uh, uh, contracting company. Now, yeah. as con- oh, contractors – I mean, They're always looking at that bottom line, and what affects the bottom line – is going to be equipment getting destroyed. Well, it, uh, you know, equipment getting destroyed, casualties. Uh, you know, they, that affects the bottom line. Equipment getting destroyed affects the bottom line. Uh, <clears throat> missing uh, drops, which we never really ever did. Like I said, we're at like ninety-eight percent. It was like only a couple of times that uh, we did not make a required drop because of an enemy attack and uh, the team leader had to make the call to burn the vehicle and uh, they, uh, they had to burn up the mill. Now, now you as a contractor, you followed the contract, not the company holding the contract or was it the other way around? Yeah, no, we would uh, follow the, the contract. The scope of work is what we went by. So if the contract was sold, you went then with the contract then, right? Uh, yeah, you had that option. You had that option. Uh, but sometimes the new folks coming in, they're going to, uh, you know, want their own people in there doing their – so that way they have their own oversight, which is what I think happened here because uh, after uh, Bedford's team got hit, I made the decision I got to get off the roads, and I ended up going to the static side for, like, my last year there. All right now, as a contractor, you are actually performing, like I said, military functions because you're going down the road and you're being a- yes. attacked by the enemy. Now you've yes. got to defend yourself, but you're not just yes. purely American contractors. You're a whole hodgepodge no. of people. Tell us about how your team was made up and what the different nationalities and what you expected from each. All right, yeah, you had your, she's. Uh, uh, before, initially it was uh, each vehicle had an American up in the right front, and we used Serb dr- Serbian drivers. And then we had uh, our locals, our Afghan, local Afghans as the gunners uh, up on the PKM machine guns. And then, of course, we had one interpreter. So each team was uh, 13 people uh, strong. You had seven locals, three Americans, and three Serbs. Then after a while... Uh, the, 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 the better Serbs, the guys that had their shit together, we would uh, go ahead and uh, do ATLs. So that only that cut the American requirement down to two. And once again, this is corporate because now you can pay a Serb less than an American. And then uh, 
uh, yeah, and then we just started bringing the Fijian drivers too. Once again, I mean, uh, you know, you pay them less. So, and we they the the pay scale for like uh, the foreign countries or the third country nationals was all based off of their uh, country, their uh, their economics, and uh, they would actually our Department of Labor would clear through their Department of Labor how much we were going to stock them off at and what the cap would be at. Uh, so, because you couldn't overpay them, or else you'd have all the doctors and lawyers and all the skilled infrastructure types leaving the country to go contract and be a driver, and they couldn't have that. Now, you got close to some of these people too. Um, some oh yeah, of them... yeah, they're, yeah, they're your friends. Yeah, you work out together, you eat together, you go to the range, you train together. Uh, you know, you running these missions together. Yeah, they're your friends. They're your brothers. And, uh, yeah, you lose them. I mean, it hurts. It, 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 it's a kick in the face. Now, I, I remember on, on numerous occasions that you had the Afghan gunners and some of the drivers. Um, you had a problem with them because you had to worry about team secrecy and security where you would tell them, don't take your cell phone and so forth certain things that might give away our information and our location. And you've had to run it a couple times in trying to keep things secure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bedford, I think, uh, found the best way of doing it. There was a gunner that was always on his cell phone. Uh, he was from the Logar province. And we found out later on just uh, that chances are he was probably dirty anyways. But uh, what happened was he was on his phone. His uh, team got hit. Uh, but the one vehicle that the uh, the gunner was in, that vehicle did not get shot at. So what happened was the next time Bedford rolled out, he went ahead, let the guy make a phone call. Then he went ahead, pulled him out of the, stopped the convoy, pulled him out of his gun truck, patted him down, took his cell phone from him, and then put him in a different gun truck. And then, uh, so when they got hit later on that day, he was actually in the vehicle that was getting uh, lit up which is kind of uh, ironic. And then, uh, uh, because then I'm, I'm sure he was on the phone that night yelling at his cousin for shooting at him. <laughs> but I, I, and, and Bedford did that a couple more times, and the guy just said, you know, the hell with it. these guys are on to me, I'm quitting. And he just quit. Because, I mean, he did not want to get killed by his cousins. Well, now, another thing is, is that as contractors, should one of you guys get hit and killed, the treatment was so much different than as if you were active military, and it was something that um, you, Chase, and others took special care in making sure that the proper honor was given. Yeah, we tried to, but, I mean, at the end of the day, like when uh, we lost Chris and Matt, both Americans, uh, they got, they received full honors from them because it was on a, uh, the mail contract, uh, it fell under the mail contract, the DOD contract. The military, and they were both veterans. One, Chris was a Marine, and uh, Matt was uh, in the Army. Uh, the military said, we're going to keep them in the system. And they got uh, full on as flag draped coffins on a C-17 going home to Dover. Uh, versus uh, the TCNs, like the Serbs, the Fijians, uh, we, we couldn't have given them that. And pretty much it was, uh, you know, they flew home as cargo. Well, and, uh, that, was lost, that wasn't lost on anybody. And it would have been, 
and it was like after that, it was like, man, we got to do something. I mean, we we got to fix this somehow. That if something happens to these guys, they get the same level of respect that we give an American. Right now, Chase, this is this is where I was going to ask you because you know when you have an Afghan you know Muslim that was killed, uh, certain things were being done to show respect because one thing that you guys were trying to do is that with the local villagers to show that you're not there to harm them, you're just there to get the job done to move the mail or whatever package you were uh, tasked with delivering. Um, And the care that you guys did for the locals when one of them was killed was extraordinary. Yeah, they, you know, uh, according to their traditions, uh, you know, they, they, they prefer buried within 24 hours of the event um we uh we make arrangements uh, of notification uh we meet sometimes and meet the family right there before we get into the combat when we're bringing the body back and then uh we turn them over directly to the family at that point yeah because ed you you detail in there how in certain instances the muslim tradition of cleansing the body and placing yeah. it in its shroud was is so detailed yeah, what happened was uh, when we lost Fawad and we finally made it into uh, Organi. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what Buddha did. Uh, he stayed back into the uh, the makeshift morgue, uh, made sure Peril was taken care of, and then he actually went through and uh, the senior gunner actually helped him out, I believe. <clears throat> and uh, they washed uh, Fawad's body, uh, and they did it in the order that was supposed to be done. And uh, they just, put, I mean, and he just paid that respect to the, uh, you know, to the uh, to the interpreter, to our fallen. The, the, and what happens is word gets out about that, and you know these guys, hey, it is dangerous, but they're going to take care of you, and that's the big thing. Just take care of them. That's all they wanted. That would be paid on time. Yeah. Now you guys were running what they call the ring road. Now, people have no idea what we're talking about when we're talking about inside Afghanistan, and they're thinking, well, you're, you're a, bunch, a bunch of civilians, you're contractors, all you're doing is running the mail back and forth, so what's the big deal? Why, why are they going to even bother with you? Um, but to the Taliban and to the insurgents, there was a big deal. Yeah, we were a yeah. big target. Yeah. They, uh, you know, military's you know, a hard target that's usually a primary target, though sometimes we were considered secondary targets or targets of opportunity. Um, but the, the the higher our success rate uh, eventually ended up, uh, the Taliban ended up putting a bounty on our heads. And so now we became primary targets and, and uh, it, it became a little bit more difficult to operate. We changed some of our TTPs. Uh, we painted our trucks uh, black so we could run at night. There were times when we, we didn't have uh, night vision goggles or nods, uh, so we ran with our headlights off. And, of course, those vehicles give out a huge sound signature. And we might have the advantage going to a location, but they know that we're coming back on that same road. So Ring Road is the uh, primary route in Afghanistan. It just makes a huge ring around the entire country. So it's, it's basically the only road that you can travel on when you're trying to get to point A to point B. Now, uh, um, Ed, explain exactly what the ring road is and what it comprises and what are the dangers. 
Uh, like Al said before, Ring Road was the one highway, the Highway 1, that ran, uh, that pretty much circled the entire country. It started in Kabul, went all the way down to Kandahar, uh, cut across the Helmand province, pushed north from Daralam to uh, Herat, and then it uh, cut back east to uh, Mazar Sharif and Kunduz, and then it back down to uh, Kabul. Uh, once again, though, I mean, that was the one road. So uh, everybody knew about it. Everybody knew that if you're going to be moving any supplies or anything out of Kabul to any of these outlying sites, you're going to be running Highway 1. That's why they wanted to uh, – so, yeah, it was just – some people argue that it's just mail, but it was also, you know, like Al said before, you might miss it on the way in, but you're probably – but you'll be ready for us when we're coming back because you know we're going to run that route to come back. It's just a matter of uh, when. You already figured out the where. So now it's just a matter of when uh, it's going to happen. So well, this, ro- this road wound through so much different types of terrain where you'd be going over um, through vi- villages, over small little bridges, up through mountain passes. It wasn't just a straight, smooth, paved road. It's not I-95. No, no. Absolutely. I mean, some bridges are blown out. Uh, uh, you have parts of the road blown out, worn out, eroded out. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was supposed to have been a well-built road, but because of corruption, kickbacks, Cut and uh, cutting corners, uh, you know. Eventually, you know, the, the the road itself deteriorates a lot faster than it should. Well, Ed, as you're driving down this road, you see the skeleton of those that passed before you, and you write about it in depth in the book and how eerie it is. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like some of some of that stuff was like a scene out of Mad, Mad Max. You know, go ahead. I mean, just weaving through. Uh, you know, there's a convoy, a previous convoy. Half the trucks are on fire, and you're just weaving right through it. And uh, you want to keep moving because uh, motion and momentum is survival. So you want to. You don't want to sit there and get jammed up. You want to get through that quick. Well, Ed, one of the things you did is you kept a footlocker, and. Yeah. Tell us how darted, and where is that footlocker today? I was just picking up things here and there. I was just picking up things like after and, and mementos after like uh, a good uh, you know something funny happened. I mean there might be a memento there. Grab it. Uh, something uh, you know. Hey, this will be this will be fun to remember this later on, but eventually it just became uh, bad memories. And uh, you know, you just look in there one day. One day after we lost Bedford's team, I looked in there. I was like, "This thing, ah, uh, it, it it was a footlocker with a bunch of stuff in it." And uh, I mean, when I left, I went ahead and uh, most of that stuff stayed in Afghanistan. I did not. Uh, I, I brought very little of it back home. Well, you felt a need to remember the, the the 
all those that have gone before you that had worked with yeah, you. Yeah, you felt the, the need to. Yeah. Yeah, especially the guys we lost. Yeah, I mean, you always got to. I mean, that's always a priority. It is. It is. It's a, it's a powerful book, and it, it tells people that have no idea what you guys are going through. I mean, we have a lot of TV movies on there that, you know, glorify this and that. But here you are in the heart of it, and you there's no way for you guys to completely explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. I mean, people are going to say, so what, you're getting paid. Well, the military gets paid too. But there's a special bond and reason why you still stayed out there when you could have been home. Well, yeah, uh, most of us uh, for wanting to continue to serve. Uh, that was, uh, you know, that was a big thing there. I mean, yeah, the money was good, but, you know, I mean, you're still running, uh, you're still working with a bunch of guys with the same mindset. Uh, and you don't find that back here, you know, that same mindset. You, It's not prevalent in the society here uh, right now in this country, but you go overseas and work in amongst those guys that do are all hanging out together. It's all a similar mindset. And that's what, that's what, uh, that's what attracted me to it was, you know, the type of work, work with those type of guys. Uh, yeah. And, and, and getting a good paycheck to boot. And, uh, cause everybody would bring something to the table and you would build off of that. Well, Chase, you you had like a couple little run-ins with one guy named Rector um, that was trying to like torpedo you, but you managed to outwit him, I should say, in the end. Uh, not not so much. You know, it wasn't really a bad relationship. Um, I, I think Rector wanted to uh, uh, fill some gaps with uh, people that he had worked with in Iraq and he was trying to help them guys get jobs and whatnot. Um, and so it, you know, it boiled down to one of their secure contracts required, uh, uh, American citizenship. Uh, he did offer me a job, but then I would have gotten paid as a third country national as opposed to an American, which is, you know, I was making pretty good money at the time and, and yeah, you can stay on, but you're not going to be a medic. You're going to be a shooter, uh, or a driver or an ATL but you're going to get third country national pay. And, you know, that was, that was kind of like a kick in the teeth. So. Well, in reality, you were born in Canada, but you served in the American military. You have American residents here, um, but he, he was going to treat you as a third country person. Yeah. It, that, that was the offer that, that was put on the table and I just chose not to take it. Uh, I actually uh, left and went to another contract uh, back in Iraq, and then later on I went back to Afghanistan when the when uh, the contract got bought out by another company, and they didn't require the citizenship. And of course, I I got the same pay I was making uh, when I left. So, well, you know, people think, all right, fine, all you're doing is bringing the mail back and forth. Uh, but Ed, you talk about it in the book where you had to carry large amounts of cash for bribes. And, in fact, there's somewhere in the book you talk about this one guy, I believe he's called the general, who had his finger in every single little pie uh, and was so high up in the hierarchy in Afghanistan that he was able to move mountains. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the uh, yeah the colonel. Uh, the colonel. 
Yeah, that's like I said. But I mean, a lot of that is to yeah. He might we might be paying him extra money to get stuff done. You got always got to wonder though how much of that was being used to expedite, and how much of it actually went into his pocket. You know, I mean, the, you, the, you the, always the, ask that question. The company well, requires the company requires a, a an Afghanistan counterpart in yeah. order to do business. And so they called it SOC A, even though the company was SOC, it was SOC A for, for Afghanistan. So they did their own vetting. And, uh, you know, the colonel was basically a political officer that was really connected. Uh, I believe he was related to Wally Carside's brother uh, somewhere. And, um, he, you know, we needed him in order to uh, move paperwork around, get, get uh, weapons and vehicles in country and um, you know, when we did movements to the airport, uh, he was able to get us through a lot, a lot of checkpoints. But when they, they talk about these uh, expedition fees, it's it's really boils down to extortion. Uh, and so you've yeah. got some paperwork that's over at the Ministry of Interior, and uh, the more money you pay, the higher on the on the pile of paperwork that that uh, those requests go. But when they say, "Hey, it's going to be twenty thousand dollars in order to get this done," how, how do you how do we know that it's actually twenty thousand uh, dollars? It could be two thousand dollars, and then the, the colonel's pocketing the rest. So it, it's a, it's catch twenty two. You have to have it, but you know that that's the downside of it. Well, people don't understand here in the United States the need for bribes, and you talk about certain situations where. Say, for example, you're going through the streets of Cabal and someone has a little fender bender or alleges a fender bender. Next thing you know, cash comes out and the problem disappears. You have the same thing with checkpoints. Checkpoints would suddenly appear out of where there shouldn't be one, and, of course, out comes the cash and then it disappears. This is what people don't understand when you are not only battling but trying to do what you did in Afghanistan. Yeah, there there were a lot of times that – we, we tried to make these payments, uh, you know, to, to resolve the situation as, as soon as possible. So if, if somebody crashed in your vehicle, it's automatically your fault. And so we'd offer them some money uh, uh, and try to mitigate the situation as soon as possible. The longer it took, then, uh, you know, the A&P or Afghan National Police would show up. And next thing you know, the, the, the price of bartering went from uh, maybe $200 to $2,000. And that's what we tried to avoid. Yeah. yeah was, go ahead. Yeah, it was all about trying to mitigate the costs here. I mean, we knew we were going to get screwed, but we were just trying to mitigate it and lessen it a little bit, if you would. Uh, so, yeah, that was our that, that that was always a battle. You you were always fighting that fight, trying to uh, figure out. I mean, how much do I pay, or do I pay them, or, you know. And most of the times, you know, the payoff would work. Uh, other times, you know, you'd have to get a little bit physical with them uh, to make your point known and get off the X and to get out of there. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I, I've got like about 18 pages of notes from just reading your book here, and I'm going to hold the pages up in front of the camera so on my end. Sorry, Alan, I couldn't get the camera working on your end. But if you guys know someone who can get my head out of my butt here and get this running, I'd be happy to entertain them. <clears throat> but I also pulled up my original notes you guys sent me last year 
with your sketch for the book and everything else. I have it all here together. So, you know, one of, one of the things I want to ask is between the two of you, uh, you had this long process of writing this book, which took the two of you a couple of years to put together, to come up with this magnificent book, which I recommend everyone out there to read, especially kids today, to finally realize what you guys pay for for what we have here at home and how it has affected you. Um, is there anything in the book that either one of you want to say that you regret writing? Oh, uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> All right, let's, let's start with Ed first, and we'll go Alan next. No. Okay. I, I, I really, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think I have any regrets about anything that was written. Alan? Yeah. Well, we uh, we had uh, eight additional chapters to the book that we had to take out because uh, uh, when the acquisition occurred uh, uh, with the new contract company, uh, some of those missions were classified. So there, I mean, that contract, we wrote from, 2009 to 2012, but that contract lasted until December 24th of 2016. So there's a lot of guys that we're trying to uh, honor that we can't mention their names or we can't talk about the missions because uh, because they were classified. So um, I regret that. I mean, I, I feel like uh, there's no way to include, you know, the names of some of the guys and some of the events that had occurred because we, you know, we lost guys uh, post-2012 as well. Um, there were a lot of uh, attacks and, and uh, a lot of uh, ambushes that had occurred that we can't mention. And, and uh, I just, I, I feel bad for them. You know, we want to honor them as well. Yeah. yeah it, it's the silent honor that you're, you're stuck with it. You can't tell anyone that you know these things and it's in your heart. And it's like, how do you let it out? Um, the only other way is if you guys have like a reunion and you just talk among yourselves, but that's not the same. No, uh, we have a we have a Facebook group that we talk to each other about, and I'm pretty sure that they know and understand, uh, you know, the situation that we were placed in when it came to writing the book. Um, it, it's I think the biggest thing uh, for us right there, aside from honoring our guys, is to try to let the general public know that this type of work, uh, you know, occurred, and there's there's so much misinformation and conjecture involved with uh, uh, security contractors because we don't want to be seen as mercenaries and, and uh, we're, you know, uh, not trying to do anything political or, or uh, do anything offensive in nature. It, it was, uh, it was a, a complete defensive type of an operation. And, uh, you know, the Department of Defense, you, you know, they, they, they would move the mail when they could, but like Ed said, was a low priority and a lot of times they had other missions that took precedence and that mail would just sit there for weeks at a, at a time so eventually when this department of defense contract came to fruition uh we were able to get the mail moving and uh you know and it's a huge benefit to to the morale and welfare of the troops you know uh in addition to uh some of the other stuff where we ran uh secure loads critical mission supplies ammo fuel uh vehicles food uh you know weapons uh, everything and a lot of people don't realize that that uh we a actually help the army and or the military sustain operations uh by by getting these here with a high success rate so yeah i mean getting a letter from home getting a package from home is so important to the men and women especially up on the front lines and you talk about that uh but for the government, it didn't seem like it was a priority. Let's get the, the, the bullets up there. Let's get the, the bodies up there. 
but the things that sustain those bodies are what you guys carried, be it food, be it medicine, be it the mail, how important that mail was just to the morale alone on the front lines. And that's not just one of the things you did. Um, you tr- like you said, you transported you know, the ammunition, blankets, and so forth, but generators or any other equipment and stuff that they needed. But you talk about in the book about um, at one point the Russians had abandoned all these wells, and your job was to go out and try to locate them. Tell us about that. Yep. And what was the purpose of that? That was DGI, I believe. Uh, they, yeah, they that had, was DGI. Yeah, DGI was uh, responsible for looking at these wellheads uh, and seeing if they were functional and uh, to try to restore their infrastructure, um, if you will. And um, so they were basically clients that we, we used. Uh, a lot of times we used the gun trucks um, to, to, to take them out there because it was such a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I think that was the whole purpose of that uh, program with the TGI was trying to get the uh, Afghans up in Herat province in western Iraq, I mean, arrest in western Afghanistan, to stimulate the economy with uh, some other type of uh, product that they could grow. Uh, I know that there was a lot of talk about, hey, instead of growing all this poppy, let's grow saffron. I mean, saffron has always been a uh, valuable spice. Um, another one was, uh, you know, natural resources. Looking at, uh, you know, what can you, I mean, what was there in Herat Province? I mean, could, could we get oil out of these wells from Herat Province so that way uh, the Afghan people could be a little bit more self-sufficient? They weren't bringing in all their fuel from uh, Pakistan or from uh Tajikistan. I mean, it was all about trying to kickstart the economy in that area outside of the poppy. Uh, that, that was the big thing there. Uh, that was the whole purpose of that, trying to yeah, kickstart the, the economy. The idea is that they see civilian contractors there moving around it would help to stimulate the economy. In some areas it did help, and a lot of other areas it just because you were dealing with tribal mentality, and yes. that's what the American government and other Western governments don't understand, a tribal mentality, and you talk about that in the book. Yeah, it's uh, that tribal mentality is just something that we're never going to fully, I mean, understand or uh, be able to um, win against, if you will. Um, it, it's just so complex. It's such a complex beast uh, because we just don't understand it. Now, um, you, you guys really worked hard to win the hearts and minds of the local villagers. And there was one chapter in the book that dealt with a dog that charged. And, oh. and you know, in the end, I'm laughing, but it wasn't so funny at the moment. No. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, they have a short- they have a sport. They they uh, they do a lot of betting on Afghan fighting dogs. These these dogs are huge uh, in nature. Uh, their their ears are completely clipped off. They're they're not cropped. They're clipped off. They don't have any ears. Um, you know, so that that's something that you know it's super sensitive to a dog. Um, that if they're in a fight, that they can't get bit. And we're sitting there uh, walking through this uh, this terrain, 
trying to find these wellheads, and all of a sudden this dog charged me. And uh, when when Ed is establishing a relationship with a village elder or something like that, and we're trying to say, hey, we're here, we're the good guys, and I go ahead and shoot a dog, that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna have effect on the relationship that you're trying to have. So it was either get bit, uh, shoot the dog, or, or uh, stand your ground. And and I guess I lucked out a little bit there. <laughs> you stood your ground. Yeah. Yeah. Did you look to see whether or not there was a pile of water beneath your feet when you were done? No, no. Just stood <laughs> walk away. <laughs> but you do, you do have a bunch of funny situations in there. Um, you, there was one, we had a local Afghan driver uh, that had a problem with his bowel movements. And you write there's two separate instances in the, of this in the book where there's a firefight going on around and this guy's just busy doing his business and turning the pages of the magazine while he's doing it. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that happens more often than not. I think those are the two most predominant uh, instances that occurred. One of them was with a local national. The other one was with uh, uh, Drew's uh, team Had a guy that had uh, some E. coli and uh, you know, you can't just leave them there. You have to run the mission with them. And, and so basically you put a bucket in a truck and, and hope for the best. But uh it's usually when you need to go to the bathroom that the worst thing happens, you know, at the worst possible time, and you just have to deal with it. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. Un- yeah. Yeah, that's that's the unfortunate part about that. Yeah, but you guys managed to get through. You managed to get yourselves back home, and God bless you for that. But you talk about also in the book um, where – you were trying to talk to your significant others at home. And what you can say and what you didn't say uh, is very poignant. Yeah, that that was uh, – that came from Sylvia. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about when we were in the editing process is that we didn't – we didn't – it seemed like our audience was, was basically military and, and security contracting and – and whatnot. And so in order to broaden the audience, she mentioned that we needed to have female perspective. And, you know, Ed and I were looking at each other saying, well, we didn't have any women on the contract. And, and, uh, and then Sylvia said, well, what about your wives? Uh, what about the mothers of the guys that were killed in action? And, you know, the, the repatriation and, and uh, informa- uh, uh, informing them, what, you know, what was their thoughts, what they went through? And, and so, and that was an eye opener for both of us, and we ended up conducting yeah. a couple more interviews and, and whatnot. And we we had that chapter calling all wise uh, added uh, because it was important in order to uh, you know offer some perspective outside of what we were doing in terms of the operations. And uh, you know there, I never told my wife that it was as bad as it really was because she would have told me to come home. You know, she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have put up uh, what we were actually doing. Yeah, a lot of marriages, very few marriages did survive, you know, what you guys went through. And when you come home, you're in a completely different world. There's like a disconnect between what you went through and what is going on back at the home front. It has to be very strange and eerie. The military, they have psych services, something to help you ease in. But for you guys, there's nothing. No, no, uh, yeah. As a veteran, you can utilize the VA for, you know, mental health issues and whatnot. But there, you know, that's few and far between when it comes to contractors. You know, the, you know, the Serbians, the Macedonians, the Fijians, um, you know, they they don't have any of those things. 
um, as it was interesting because when I did come home, I would do, you know, certain things when I was driving and I saw a dead dog on the side of the road, I'm kind of offsetting to the left. My wife's going, what are you doing? And I was just basically out of habit trying to avoid a, a possible IED, but you know, it, it was more secondary in nature that I had reacted that way. And I had to explain that to her and she, she actually kind of thought it was funny, but uh, eventually I got <laughs> over that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had the same thing happen to me. When I first came home here in uh, Central Oregon, I was offsetting. And uh, I got stopped twice. First time by the same cop. The first time, I explain, I look at him and he's like, I told him I was just back home and stuff. He's like, all right, yep, welcome home. I'm going to have to knock this off. And then the, he stopped me again about two weeks later. He's like looking at me. He's like, next time you're going to explain to the judge why you want your car back. Knock it off. <laughs> Right then and there, I was just like, all right, I got to get my shit together. And I knocked it off. So he cut me a chance. Uh, he did right by me. And uh, so I like to think that I did right by him. And I just uh, knocked it off and, uh, you know, just kept on. Uh, you know, I fixed my driving, you know. Well, well, one of the things I want to do, uh, again, in honor of your friend, uh, Chase, uh, Eric Adams, uh, Eric Williams, I'm sorry, um, he made a final post before he was killed in action. And I think it speaks the loudest to what you guys have going through and what you faced when you came back home. So if you, you, you would let me, let me uh, read this, please. And it's titled, Coming Home. And Eric Williams writes, This deployment is coming to an end. In a few days, we will be on a plane back in the United States to rejoin our family and friends and to try to readjust to a certain semblance of what we think. The truth is, everything has changed. We have changed. We have changed as people, as an army, as citizens of the United States. We face uncertainty in nearly every aspect of our lives. Our families have been without us for a year. We have only two weeks to try to enjoy the extremely limited time we have with them before it's back to the daily grind. Two weeks to try to reconnect, although this process can take weeks, months, or even years. There is no promise that any of us will return unchanged, but we collectively have been granted access to something few will ever see, or choose to see for that matter. We have bared witness to the atrocities of war. We have trust ourselves into the midst of chaos in order to do something so important, so visceral, that few will ever understand what it means. We collectively have risked it all and put everything on the line to save our fellow man, regardless of nationality, race, religion, or sex. I, for one, will reflect on these experiences for decades to come, and I know my comrades will as well. I cannot begin to describe the things we've seen, felt, or heard. We have lost brothers and colleagues. We have felt the sting of losing someone we tried our hardest to save. We have cleaned up the blood and reset our equipment in order to go back out and do it again. These people I work with are some of the most dedicated men and women I have ever met. They come from all walks of life, and although different in so many aspects, all come together collectively to accomplish this mission. I'm proud to say that I work with some of the most professional people there are. 
but now we are going home. We're out of this God-forsaken country, but we take with us the weight of thousands missions to try to dissect them as best as we know how. Now, I'm preparing to jump on a plane and return to a world I don't really understand anymore. When I was younger, I used to think I had it figured out. The older I get and the more aware I become, the more lost I feel. There is a widening gap between service member and civilian. Our economy is still struggling. Jobs are scarce. And I can only sit back and watch as our home slips into a more prevalent ideology of entitlement. Where we are inundated with political pressures, how to think and feel, who to vote for because of a political party, and to try to voice our intolerance by liking a status on Facebook to me now. Our youth are hamstrung by a failing education system. The poor are cast out and pushed aside. Veterans of these wars are living at an all-time high of homelessness and joblessness. You can't throw a rock in this country without hitting dozens of heavily medicated veterans. But the general public cares less and less about them and us. For the general public, unless you have something personally invested in these wars, they just want to get along with their day without having to be reminded that these men and women endure on a daily basis. It's unfathomable to them. Thus, the widening gap grows. In times of random occurrence, we hear thank you for your service in an airport, a restaurant, in passing at the realization that you served, although I'm sure most appreciate it. I know when I hear it, it almost sounds forced, like it's some sort of requirement to say it becomes trite and cliche and just feels fake. I'm sorry if this just hits a little too close to home for some of you reading this, but I'm just tired of trying to appease everyone I come across. The truth is that the general American public couldn't give a shit about us. They want their Starbucks and celebrity gossip and they're 16 and pregnant. We are breeding a generation of young people who have no idea what this country is founded on or what its citizens had to go through in order to make this country great and more about what time Jersey Shore is on. We are losing. We are struggling. Not in some great sense of the word, as though every generation has its great struggle. We're just losing. Losing ground at what we thought was right and what we thought life was supposed to be. And we are becoming very pissed off. It seems the more time passes by and the longer I'm away from the U.S., the angrier I become. We cannot live in a world where we hold onto the ideals that bitching solves everything, where we believe that things will be taken care of for us. If you want something done, go out and get it done, period. So in closing, while reading this, you might think I became very angry, disillusioned man. Someone who sees things so different that the average citizen, well, maybe you're right. But I can only hope that things someday will change. As for our accomplishments here in Afghanistan, I'll do it again in a heartbeat. I will forever hold these experiences close. Sergeant Eric Williams. Yeah. Yeah, that's... uh... It resonates for sure, and, and you know that's that just goes to talk about his personality, and, and you know the letter alone is 
as a testament to how great this guy was. And, and, you know, we can't do enough to honor him or the guys that we did lose. So, yeah, it's close to our hearts. Yeah, it's, it's a powerful, and it really speaks true to what you guys go through and how we don't understand or appreciate it. And that's why I want to give you guys air. And I hope I did justice to your friend Eric Chase. Uh, I, I, I his, his mom would be so appreciative. Um, you know, she's still struggling. She's a gold star mom, and, and she's still living her life, but she's, she's never going to forget. You never forget your, your, your son, you know. Yeah, and what we forget, we get so comfortable here at home, and we're worried about where we get a next latte when you guys are worried about whether or not you're going to get around the next quarter. And it's something that we forget, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can open the eyes of a lot of people out there listening to the debt we owe you and to your fellow military and your fellow contractors, the unsung heroes that no one talks about, the contractors out there. Yeah, well, I certainly appreciate you, uh, your efforts, um, and we yeah. appreciate you, Joe. Well, yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, now, um, I'm going to ask you, because this has been on my mind, um, with the fall of Afghanistan under President Biden, how do you guys feel about that, and what do you think we should have really done? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's... If, if you worked outside the wire and you worked in amongst the locals, you understood the, the level of corruption that was there, you, you saw this coming. I left Afghanistan in December 2012, and before I punched out, I sat down and had a lunch with a buddy of mine that worked at the embassy in Kabul. And uh, we're having lunch with a few of the other RSOs, and uh, I said, yeah, once we're out of here, six months this place is going back to the Taliban. They both looked at me, laughed, and said, six months, more like six weeks. And I was like, oh, wow. Reality is it was three weeks. With that being said, this should have been a plan. Uh, they blamed the Trump administration, but he sat in that office. Biden sat in that office for seven months. He had seven months to take that plan, fine-tune it, go down it line by line, and then fine-tune it to make sure that withdrawal wasn't uh, wasn't the uh, – uh, shit show that it was. Uh, well, you know, I mean, we gave up our Bagram when that should have been the evac point. And uh, the way that ECP at Bagram is set up, I mean, Al and I have been through it multiple times. If a suicide bomber had gotten in there, there's no way it would have killed 13 Americans. It would have probably gotten one, two or three maybe, and you would have had a, a few wounded but nowhere near what uh, happened at Abbott Gate. Oh, so, none of that. You had you had the uh, medical facilities there at Bagram Airport, far superior to where yeah. you had it down where Biden chose as the evac point. Um, Trump had a drawdown plan, and you guys talked about back in 2011, 2012, a drawdown plan that was also being put into effect. There were drawdown mm-hmm. plans. There was no real reason for this, fall of Afghanistan to absolutely surpass the fall of Saigon. No, like I said, the Biden administration had no plan in place. They jumped on it at the last minute. Uh, And then, uh, you know, they, they try to blame the previous administration when the reality is they sat in that office for seven months 
they had plenty of time to uh, fine-tune and uh, tweak that plan to what they needed. Yeah, it should have been a gradual demobilization process like most most all wars uh, utilize. You know, you, you take out troops like you, like you put troops in. You just reverse the process. Uh, that never really occurred. But to do a one-time evacuation like uh, that occurred um, – was a, was a huge cluster. You know, yep. One of the other things that uh, concerned us is that we had guys that were still in country that we had worked with, you know, uh, all our interpreters, all our gunners, uh, a couple of contractors that uh, when their contract was up, they actually found work with other companies in Afghanistan. And we, you know, we did our best to stay in contact with them and see how we could help out whenever possible. Um, but yeah, that was our, that was our biggest concern was what about our brothers? Yeah. Yeah. We left all those interpreters there. Yeah, we left all those interpreters there. And, I mean, people don't realize when these interpreters sign on to work for us, they're putting themselves and their families at risk. And, uh, yeah, they give us a few years of good, solid service. We need to have a plan to get them out of there. We need to have a plan for them to take care of them or else eventually what's going to happen the next go-around, people are going to remember how we treated our interpreters here. And nobody's going to want to work for us. No, and you got yeah. pretty close you to your interpreter. No, and you got pretty close to your interpreter too, because it hit home. These are like they're brother in arms. They're like family. Yeah. Any close in the family you can't get, and to leave them. And um, I had uh, Colonel Tony Schaefer on, and he's been working behind the scenes and trying to get you know, these guys out. Um, we owe them a huge, huge debt, and now it's been a couple of years, and there's still a lot of them are in hiding, unable to get out, and their oh, family's yeah. at risk. And what was worse is the, the biometrics and the information on these people, the administration turned over to the Taliban, so that makes them yeah. easier to hunt down. Yeah, all they have to do yep. is scan the retina, and it's going to come back up on that screen as a employee or a suspect. And you better hope your shit comes up as a suspect or else, uh, you know, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to ask some very tough questions while under torture. Because they yeah, want to torture you. You're talking about yeah, a no equal, you. You're talking about an equal amount of uh, uh, people that were in hiding uh, uh, compared to the number of uh, interpreters that were killed as well. It's, you know, that that's, that's a loss that we can't uh, swallow either. No, we can't. Meanwhile, we have an invasion of illegal aliens coming across our southern border and probably now on the northern border, but we can't bring in legally those that helped serve with you and serve our nation as well as their own country. We can't rescue these people that deserve to be here, but what we will let the drug cartel do human trafficking and drug trafficking freely. That's that's fine and Jim dandy, but we can't do something that's going to be good for the country and for our for the people we left behind Amen. oh yeah and that's how this administration thinks well let's so. hope there's an administration change soon <laughs> please <laughs> <laughs> so now what's with you, for you guys now what's your next step i'm going to like i said i'm going to hook up with my two friends uh from two different companies. I'll give them the information to both of you. You can talk to both of them and see which one you want to go with. Uh, but what yeah. else do you look forward to with this book and going forward? 
Yeah, just uh, working, uh, yeah, just working the marketing piece now, getting the word out there. Uh, you know, you know, getting the word out there about the book, about the story. You know, it's a unique aspect of war. Uh, you know, war is a business. And also, uh, you know, we want to honor our fallen, I think. I mean, I know that we want to honor our fallen. Well, you can tell um, Eric Williams' mom that this is got up on Facebook and YouTube, the video, so she can see the whole thing where I do the dedication at the front and then later on where I read his final entry. Uh, give her a little peace of mind that he will not be forgotten. And your book is a tribute to him and all the others that you write about in the book. And in the end, you do acknowledge each individual one by one that you wanted to mention special. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, we, we certainly will. Oh, I, It is a great book, and I'm telling people to go and click on a Postcards Through Hell as well as uh, postcardsthroughhell.com as the PonyExpress.net, and I also have a link to the book on Amazon by clicking on the title. It can go directly to Amazon and get the book, and they can either get it in Kindle or in softcover, and uh, it is an amazing, amazing book, and you tell Ed how you and Chase ended up stepping off of the ring of death and coming back into civilian life briefly. Uh, how are you guys doing now? Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. I, you know, I'm working Oh, at, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I work at uh, a community fire rescue uh, as a firefighter paramedic. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just got promoted to lieutenant today. Oh, uh, congratulations. I, I'm going to be going to a, a, a promotional ceremony here in about uh, an hour and a half. And uh, it's interesting because I'm still kind of doing the same kind of work. It's just uh, I won't say in a semi-permissive environment where – you know, a, a number of the people that I save are actually criminals. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, they say, uh, careful of the life you might save, you might take years later. So uh, <laughs> got to be careful there. Well, we had a saying that uh, at least we went home and took our uniform and gun belt off at the end of the night. You guys were there living it 24-7, you didn't have that chance to, to relax for a minute. You had had to be a swivel on a swivel 24-7. And uh, it, it kind of like hit me a little ironically the other day because I told you I'm recovering. I had just recovered from COVID, and I was at the very end of it. I walked out to get the mail, and as I'm coming back up by my front yard, um, COVID, some of these are now affecting your eyesight. I found my peripheral vision on my left side. Suddenly it was a little bit diminished, and it threw me off. And I just couldn't imagine being out there in the field and having something like that happen to you. We're all said now. It's like for me, at least I was able to get in the house and sit down and say, okay, fine, I'm fine. But to not be able to have that and to have to live with that 24-7 is a freaky, freaky thing. Well, writing the book was therapeutic for both of us, so it was a good thing. So no more yeah, being pulled uh, no, over, no more traffic tickets. <laughs> yeah, <No>. definitely. <laughs> well, you know, it is, it is a fantastic book, and I'm telling people that they should go on and uh, download it or buy the book and have it shipped to you. And I want to thank you because now I've got the autographed copy that will go up on my bookshelf with all the others behind me, uh, along with uh, Scott Houston's Echo Ramadi and Colin Heaton's book back there and 
a couple others that you write about in the beginning that helped you also that I have their books also uh, in the uh, bookshelf too. Yeah, Scott Mann uh, wrote Operation Final Pineapple Express, and and uh, Fred Galvin wrote uh, A Few Bad Men. Uh, they they both gave us some glowing endorsements as well. So Amy Forsyth, uh, Heroes Live yeah. Here. Uh, yeah, they, they're some great people, and we're we're proud to be in their company. Absolutely, because I see Colin got you, um, um, Major General Livingston, to do a forward on here. He's always right. good to have in the back pocket. <laughs> yeah, we got we got a good one from Dale Dye as well. So, yeah, you got Fred Galvin. Yeah, uh, yeah, these are all people that uh, I've had on the show. So yeah, people <laughs> that I know. So yeah, we we travel a small circle here. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got to tell well, you, if you guys do decide to do a book tour or anything like that, and you head down to, here to South Carolina, you definitely have to make sure you give me a call. Oh yeah, I, I will. Annie, I will. Because right, yeah, you know will. what, I I did become a member of the Women's Auxiliary at my local Anvets recently. I have to admit, I finally broke down and did it. All right, congratulations. <laughs> well. Alan and Ed, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a blast. And I'm sorry I lost my co-host about halfway through your interview. He had to take off for an interview with California on his other end. Okay. So we will have you back again, and God bless you, and I'll be talking to you both soon. All right, thanks. Thank you. All right. right. Have a good one. You too. All right, Alan Chasen and Ed Ford, check out their book, um, Postcards Through Hell, uh, up on Amazon, as well as postcardsthroughhell.com and ponyexpress.net. Uh, down to our last 15 minutes, and I'm running out of breath here, because like I said, after COVID, I ended up with bronchitis, so I don't want to start coughing into the microphone very soon, so I may end up closing off a little bit early. want to thank everyone that joined us over on Facebook in the chat room there, also up on YouTube again. Thank you. Still having a problem getting it back up on my home page, and I'm going to work on that and find out why I can't get video back up there. Um, but we will be back next week with a rocking good lineup again. Unfortunately, we didn't have someone from Heritage uh, because there was something going on at Heritage this weekend. So I will get together with Corinne and start booking again Heritage guests to close off our show like we normally do. <clears throat> and I'm sorry, I'm starting to run out of breath here. I want to also give a special shout-out to Sweet Sue, who has been listening in. I uh, hope everything is going well with you, Sue. miss talking to you. And I hope everyone had an enjoyable time. And we will be back, same bat time, same bat station next week. So I will be leaving about 10 minutes early, so forgive me for leaving a little bit early. But until then, I want to say good night and God bless, and I will leave you with a song from my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. And that's if we can get it to play. And tell me, no sound. And unfortunately, I have no sound. So, of course, I don't know what is going on here. Something's happened to my switchboard, and I'm not having any luck here today. All right, so instead, I'll leave you with John Khan and American Heart. I'm American made. I got American parts. I got American faith. In America.
delicate melody. 